The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. listening to the Parsley Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 127 is something like, what's the relationship between experience and the world? And we read John Dewey's Experience and Nature, chapters 1 through 4, from 1925. You can join the discussion, get the texts, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, hoarding terminal qualities in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn, sequentially ordered in Boston, Massachusetts. Take your time. Um, this is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. Oh. That was terrible. You have uh, rendered subject distinct from object, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> we are no longer an unanalyzed totality. So, John Dewey, what did y'all think? I got the sense, Mark, that you were not enjoying it, but I think he's a great writer, even though it's difficult, it's dense, and it's packed full of insights. I mean, I, as you guys probably anticipated, I disagree with the fundamental theory, but you cannot deny that it's so insightful. It's impressive. I'll be interested to hear the disagreement. Well, it's just the typical disagreements about whether this really can avoid being a man as the measure of all things or a relativistic account. Uh, so John Dewey, known for his pragmatism, known yep. also for his theories about education, mm-hmm. which are very much in line with what we uh, read here. This is a later work. I mean, he lived to be 92, so it, there's plenty of work after this. But he was already in his 60s at this point, 1925. And he started writing when he was a, a, a Hegelian, like in the 1880s, and then wrote his pragmatism stuff around the same time as William James around 1900, and then the the big book Democracy and Education was 1915. Yep. So 1925. This is his mature work of metaphysics. By the way, he was accused of this being like a crypto Hegelianism. <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Yes. Was just... That was part of his background. I mean, I've thought this about pragmatism too for a long time. It's hard to. It's crypto Hegelianism. It, it, it comes out of neo Kantianism, and it's even though they try and kick off the scaffolding, their inheritance. I said them during a pragmatism podcast that it kind of walks this fine line between relativism and idealism, but I've never understood how it avoids being one of those two. But again, I don't want to drag us into that right now. So the word pragmatism doesn't show up in here at all, I believe. It does. It shows up once. And not as pragmatism, but as pragmatic. It's in the second chapter, I think. I find four instances in the whole book doing my search. Oh, you <laughs> oh, have a... You and your crazy books. open, just the one that you sent us that we'll share with the people. I took my notes on that. I ordered the book and I can't do electronic anymore. And the one instance on page 109 of the word pragmatism is just, is not using it like pragmatism, the philosophical theory. It's knowing that consequences will take care of themselves if conditions can be had and managed and any radical natural pragmatism indulges in a cheap and short conversion. Doesn't matter if we know what that means right now, but... Did you find pragmatic? I don't think our page numbers are the same, sorry. Huh. That's odd. I thought this was, like, fixed. 
a fixed and rigid metaphysical. <laughs> Mark, what's the last page number in chapter four? I have the same version you have. It's 165. Uh, you, you don't because it's 137 oh, for Wes and me, I think, right? No, mine is 165. 165? Uh, what version do you have? I mean, they're all the second. It's the second edition. Yeah. My, it, I have the I have the one that's Paul Karras lectures at the top. Yep. Maybe mine, it starts the page numbering, not from the preface, but from the chapter one. Yeah, as does ours. And actually, it's funny just because, and I think he must have been conscious about this, because the second version of it had a new chapter one, mm-hmm. some modifications that he talks about in the preface. And so chapter one actually starts on page 1A, and it goes through 4A, and then it starts over with one, just to make the number of pages line up with his volume uh, one, I believe. Oh, mine, mine doesn't do that at all. That is very anal. Yeah, I didn't know why that was done. <laughs> huh, that's weird. I guess it's just different uh, publishers. Mine's the open court version. Dover Publications. Uh, yeah. Even when we're not dealing with Dover. a foreign language text, we still have these issues. <laughs> But at least we can uh, blame all the wording on John Dewey himself. I found his style had a lot of fun things in it, but felt that each of these chapters, so we only read the first four, the whole book is over 400 pages, but even just the first four was up to 165 pages plus the preface. I just thought each of those chapters had a point in it that could be summed up, and he does even sum them up, in about two sentences. Yeah, it's very repetitious. It's kind of disorganized, too, because I went through the exercise of trying to summarize it. And then you realize, oh, my God, he's jumping all over the place. And, Is it because they were lectures um, or at least based on lectures? Because the, the intro says it's the Paul Karras Foundation lectures that were intended yep. to be published. Then after someone sat through. <laughs> they're really freaking long. These chapters. And dense. <laughs> it seems to me more like well-crafted writing, despite the repetition and the... All right, so we've said it has something to do with pragmatism. People might not even know what pragmatism means. We did an episode before on pragmatism. The the specific term that he does use instead of pragmatism in Chapter 4 more, when he's talking about science, is instrumentalism. Initially, his big issue is that philosophy, and he really generalizes about philosophy and talks about the problem with philosophy, is if all, even the seemingly contradicting points of view of the different philosophical schools, they all have made this mistake of basically it's what Whitehead in that episode we did earlier this year called the bifurcation of nature, right? Between the world and mind. Yeah. Yep. I think that mistake though is he thinks it's predicated on some other mistakes. And I think that's why he starts out with this idea that experience is double barreled or it contains this unanalyzed totality. So this is on page eight. He's privileging what we think of as sort of our naive everyday experience of objects like chairs and tables. That's sort of the anchoring point for the whole thing where you have to see these things as the immediate and real things. And then you branch out from there. Whereas traditional philosophy has, at the time he's writing, it's gotten to the point where those are just phenomena, those are just appearances, and there's some underlying reality that accounts for those appearances, whether it's, you know, for the ancients, some sort of form, or whether for modern materialists, it's, oh, the chair is really just atoms and space and blah, blah, blah. He's rejecting all of that. He's going to object to anything which bifurcates appearance and reality in that way. The subject-object problem sort of arises out of that bifurcation of appearance and reality. A big part of that is, I think he blames all of philosophy for not accepting things that are transitory as having being, of focusing far too much on essentially fixed things 
and saying that only those things have being and anything that's transitory doesn't have being. Right. Yeah, that's his account of the selective emphasis where yep. we sort of take these epistemic values. We value unity. We value order and stability. These yep. things that we want to achieve with inquiry. And we think of them as just already given. What is real is just the unified and the stable. So you get these fixed forms, for instance, in platonic metaphysics that never change, despite the fact that the world that we experience is full of flux and instability. He points to the partisans of flux and say that they end up essentially romanticizing it and making it into its own fixed thing. And that they you know, sort of fall off the reservation as far as he's concerned. Yeah, Heraclitus and Bergson, who, who try yeah. to sort of honor change, he thinks, yeah, they don't really get there. But, yeah. And he also has a lot of sympathy for it. He considers it ultimately useful to focus on things that are the way in which they're fixed. But he thinks it's, you know, sort of an accident of our own temporality and our own sort of time scale, what things we pick to be fixed and what things we pick to not be fixed. And that we need to understand everything is really being events, regardless of whether they seem to be fixed or not, because the fact is, is that none of it's fixed. We're still at a high-level summary here. Yep. Uh, we've thrown out the problem that he sees, and then you've started giving the solution. Wes already gave part of the solution, too, which is acknowledging that experience is a double-barreled word. Now, what that means is that the experience of the table is not just the table part, it's also the experiencing part. Mm -hmm. So what Husserl called noesis and noema, if that's helpful, but it will not be helpful to most people, oh my God. <laughs> uh, that, that we might want to say immediately, okay, of course, there's the table, the objective thing, and then there is the way that we experience it. But that's the bifurcation of nature. That's the problem right there. It says, no, experience of table is one thing. It's just like, to bring in another comparison, the being in the world was uh, given a hyphen by Heidegger to show that somehow the being and world were not fundamentally separable. And I think we should read the way he puts this. It's sort of the, I see it as the whole premise. Or, I mean, I know it's the solution, but it's also really where he starts from. Once you get this assumption down, I think you, so on 4A, for instance, at the very bottom, it is not experience, which is experienced, but nature, stones, plants, animals, diseases, health, temperature, electricity, and so on. Things interacting in certain ways are experience. And they are what is experienced. Linked in certain other ways with an, another natural object, the human organism, they are how things are experienced as well. So I think, think that's a pretty strong statement of the sort of unity of nature and experience. And he's going to bite the bullet. This is one of the most problematic parts. And I don't know that we can treat it properly here because apparently there's another paper on this. But if you want to say, for instance, that experience is scary, he actually is still going to say, that's actually scary as a thing out in the world just as much as color or shape or anything else. There's no grounds for that uh, Locke making the distinction between secondary qualities that are in the head and primary qualities that are in the world. Well, if he fundamentally does not want to separate head and world, that the head is just part of the world. You think of something, then you're thinking of that is an event that goes on in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had, a, can I read another quote for this just because it's also so important? On 12, near the bottom, it is a notorious fact that one who hates finds the one hated an obnoxious and despicable character. To the lover, his adored one is full of intrinsically delightful and wonderful qualities. The connection between such facts and the fact of animism is direct. So he's favorably comparing animism to his own theory. <laughs> the natural or original bias of man is all toward the objective. And what he means by the objective here 
is the idea that even these things like hate and love, which, as Mark was saying, we're used to thinking of as just in our heads, but no, the object in experience itself is hateable or lovable. And so, of course, he has to give then some kind of explanation for, for instance, when you're wrong about something. You hear a noise and it's loud and scary, but then you turn on the light and you realize it was just, you know, your furniture bumping around or something. He still wants to say that the noise itself, when it happened, was loud and scary. That's just part of the world. And you then discovering more about it is uh, just undertaking some experimentation, some interaction with the world. And that's how things work is you actually modified the situation. You made it no longer scary by turning on the light and checking things out. That sounds completely sensible. Explain a little bit why that doesn't sound sensible. That scariness is in the thing in itself? Well, (laughs) scariness is in the event. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The subject-object event is combined. and It seems to me that when you say something like the scariness is in the event, it seems like it's a little bit pejorative compared to what he's saying. The scariness is in the event and that unified experience between you and the world. And that is one thing. And to say, oh, Dewey's saying that the that scariness is a real thing in the table. That's not what he's saying at all. That's making the same mistake. That way of putting it that he's yep. accusing is that all of philosophy makes. This is fundamentally a problem with our language. Yep. We're so used to thinking in this way. He, he says, thinking of mind and body as two sides of a the same object like convex and concave is something that is literally unthinkable to us. But yet, if we understand things correctly, that's how it should be. It's part of the same phenomenon. Yeah. We have to unthink these mental habits. Yes. And in fact, when you start going down the road of what we were just calling so absurd, he says, yes, it's absurd. And it's a sign that the way you're doing philosophy is absurd, <laughs> that you're making a mistake. That's one of the signs of the failures of philosophy. The intuition that's not absurd, I think, is that there's some mind-independent reality. You can sort of, from the beginning, say, well, we're going to look at things from the perspective of the mind as a natural part of reality, and then, so I'm not thinking about the relation of the subject to object. I'm looking at nature from on high, and I look at these subject-object dyads, which haven't been split apart, and call those the facts, instead of treating the facts as outside of the subject, and then the subject has to somehow relate to them. I think there are a lot of complicated problems that actually arise from that about whether that gives you a sufficient level of mind independence or whether that implies something mind independent outside of the realm of experience. What anchors, for instance, different agreement about things of different subject object dyads or their disagreement. The fact that the broccoli on the table in my event is good and in yours event is bad and things like that. I didn't say it was absurd, but I don't think it's an obvious home run to make these types of assertions. So you might think in Dewey's language, what is this uh, thing that unifies experience? This thing that the table in particular, when you and I look at it, it's the same thing. Well, he wants to go with the naive common sense answer as much as possible that there actually is in our experience and thus in metaphysics, since experience is of the world and of the real world. It's a table. A table is a thing. It is partially inexperienced because we are experiencing parts of it, but he's not going to deny the phenomenological fact that there are parts of it that are outside any particular person's experience at any time. But he just doesn't think that there a metaphysical problem comes with that. The other thing is that the table is no more privileged as a part of your experience than your dream about the table. 
And it just has a different relationship to other experiences than the dream about the table. So there's no metaphysical privileging of this is real and the dream is illusory, except in some functional sense of illusory. But go ahead. Yeah, and but that functional sense is really important. When you say something like, well, there's no privileging the, dif- the distinction between the dream of the table and the table itself and trying to imply that therefore you can't distinguish dreams from reality. That's not what I'm trying to imply. I'm not attacking Dewey yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he's not really clear about this. He talks a little bit about illusions. He doesn't talk about dreams that I recall, you know, about illusions. He says, well, the fact that the illusion happened is a fact. Okay. So how do we apply that to, you're talking about the table? Well, it's just that, is our ontology going to have a dream table in it? I mean, I suppose, but that's going to be clearly different than the real table, what we call real, because we mutually interact with it. They have different instrumental Mm -hmm. capability well that's the functional part yes exactly so that you wake up from the dream and you don't have any other set of experiences that's causally related to it you can't walk back into the dream and sit at the table and all sorts Mm -hmm. of things like that so again functionally there's a distinction but what's interesting here is that most of us are conditioned to think this way of this sort of underlying reality that that we have thoughts and feelings about where we might be wrong they might not match up to reality And that's sort of this kind of three-dimensional way of looking at things where appearance is sort of above and the reality is below. This is all flattened out. So everything that was once distinguished by this three-dimensional view is now sort of flattened out and becomes functional within that domain of appearance or experience. He is going to refuse to say the sifting of things for being truthful is going to be correspond directly to them saying, well, all those illusions, they don't have being. And all those things that are real, they have being. He's going to refuse to sift things in those directions. Well, so the way he does sift things is that the primary distinction that he makes in here is between primary experience and the secondary objects of reflection. Yep. So this immediately raises many more questions than, than it answered for me. Those are definitively not real, the secondary objects of reflection. So those include, Uh, for instance, scientific laws. Yes. They include concepts. They really include anything that can be known or thought. They include atoms. They include scientific models. They're not to be reified. They're not to be seen as these things that underlie the appearances that you somehow grasp through your inquiry. They're to be seen as these ways of regulating experience. Yes. Ways of regulating experience. Yep. Again, you have to sort of think in this flattened out way of the way they will change a sort of causal sequence for us. They produce fulfillments for us in the sense of it could be even just satisfying our curiosity. And then they also create new inquiry for us. So they're tied to experience in this important way, but they're not themselves metaphysically real. Just to try to make this concrete, what does this mean in terms of the table? That I guess the table as a concrete object is, you know, part of our primary experience that we all are able to see it and touch it and to say, oh, well, it's not really real. It's a theoretical, you know, like uh, Quine, who says that all objects are theoretical entities like atoms, that even macroscopic objects, well, all we really have are a bunch of perceptions. And then underlying that, we can theorize that there must be some object there that unifies it. That's not Dewey's position at all. He has to say that the table as an object is actually part of our experience. But calling it a physical object, calling it material, seems to involve some theory. 
seems to involve it being a secondary object of thought. Yeah, he wants to avoid calling it either material or ideal. He wants to avoid the two sorts of metaphysical options, the materialist or the idealist. But even just classifying it as opposed to a brisk wind as something that's going to stick around, we expect, until somebody breaks it or moves it or whatever. Is that not itself at least a rudimentary piece of theory that is experience is theory laden, I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, he himself says that experience is theory laden, right? So. Yeah, he's a, yeah. So how do, how do we make sense of that? Put that together with his claim that primary experience is ineffable. As soon as we start to talk about it, and as soon as we could have genuine knowledge about it, then we're already getting out of that realm into this realm of secondary objects. It just seems maybe that the line between primary experience and the secondary objects is not a very sharp one, which might be completely fine with him. It seems like he wouldn't say that the table is possible to experience as a table with essentially an embeddedness and a theory about it and its functionality. Yeah, because remember, one of the interesting things about science is that it's actually, this is the way in which it's theory-laden, it's transformative. So mm -hmm. our experience is actually changed by these non-real scientific objects. That's part of what they're good for, is the way they change our experience. That doesn't make the new experience that's been changed, that doesn't make that theoretical, right? The theory part is about this relations. Let's, let's, let me find the place where you... So on 21, for instance, or is it 21 or no, 11. So science is for a matter of instrumentalities for dealing with conditions of life and action. And then later he'll talk about it as a, the empirical method as a means of regulation of experience. So science is directed towards these causal sequences. It's directed towards the relationships between experiences. But the direct experiences themselves, while they may be transformed by that, they aren't themselves theoretical entities. We can characterize what chapter four tells us. The application of science to these things is by turning something that would have been uh, just an object of, of uh, aesthetic appreciation, just something that you notice and you groove on into a symbol of something else, into a means. So the way he puts it is that in primary experience, everything just shows up as an end. But what he really just means that is the end of whatever process it was that produced it which is a weird way of talking, is something that shows up. When you sort of think in a sophisticated way about it, by thinking of the table not just as something that I'm looking at, but as something that I can use, as something that can mean something else, I begin to think about it as a physical object and think about the fact that seeing a surface means that there could be something under it, that it's made of wood and so I could burn it. It becomes, through the application of these scientific ideas, I know it seems rudimentary to think, this can be burned as a scientific idea. But just really anytime you're investigating a potential change, that's when you're sort of flexing your the rudimentary muscles of science. Then something is being converted, I think, to a secondary project. Yeah, you're saying if I do this, then what will happen? It's potentialities. Right. That involves those secondary objects, bringing them into primary experience and changing, changing the primary experience so that something was an end becomes a means, a potential means. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So go ahead, Dylan. Well, no, I was just going to say, that, I mean, maybe this is a little bit later on, but this points to the way in which he wants to keep part of classical teleological thinking, but not against modern empirical philosophy, but not keep it all the way 
in sort of a Aristotelian sense. He thinks that it's clear that there are potentialities that are to be spoken of and sequences of causes, sequences of events that and that's the way to understand causes, basically Hume, and that process goes a long way in the direction of teleological thinking, that things have ends. We're kind of jumping forward this, with this, yeah, but he wants, to keep the, he wants to keep the aesthetic. The problem with the ancient Greek thought is it identified the aesthetic with the object of rational knowledge, yep. which you grasp in this aesthetic way. Knowledge is actually, again, has to do with these causal sequences, mm -hmm. which are not metaphysical entities, even atoms. And so the aesthetic is reserved for this primary object of experience. And when he says aesthetic, by the way, he's thinking broadly. Where's that great quote where he gives you examples of all the things that he could mean by aesthetic? Do you remember that? Like uh, relaxing your limbs after you've exerted yourself? I mean, I know he says repeatedly that describing something as aesthetic doesn't mean it's beautiful. It's just something that is has a qualitative feel. Well, it's an immediate and absorbing finality. So on page 81, or actually it's on 80, a passion of anger, a dream, relaxation of the limbs after effort, swapping of jokes, horseplay, beating of drums, blowing of tin whistles, explosions of firecrackers and walking on stilts have the same quality of immediate and absorbing finality that is possessed by things and acts dignified by the title of aesthetic. So this is this broad sense of aesthetic that he's using, and it really even includes the normative, you know, when I in general, which is the aesthetic is sort of part of the normative, but I mean the moral. When I'm making any sort of evaluative claims about objects, that's what he's talking about here. Well, maybe we better at least outline what the four chapters were about to then start sinking into this a little more deeply. So the chapter one, philosophic method. So that's where he's lying, laying out. He calls it empirical naturalism or naturalistic empiricism. He does not care which one you use mm -hmm. because they mean the same thing. That's the whole point about empirical having to do with experience, naturalism having to do with nature. That it might seem weird to talk about empirical naturalism because, well, naturalism has to do with science, it has to do with material things, but empirical is what you're experiencing. And no, what we experience is just wispy phantoms, and those are somehow related to underlying nature. No, 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 no. The whole point of that is just to stuff those two things together, to talk about what Whitehead called the bifurcation of nature. Once you've made experience double-barreled like that, that sort of forms the basis for a philosophical method that's similar to the method of the natural sciences. Every reflective method sort of draws from primate experience. It uses raw experience as its data. But the distinctive thing about science is that it returns to experience. And uses experience to refine what you were thinking basically it returns to experience to test the model the theory mm -hmm. that we have and then the return to experience is also reflected in this idea of enrichment that i mentioned so, so the primary experience changes by virtue of the path or method by which the return was made another way of saying that is that i look at the table differently once i know about atoms or Mm -hmm. My primary experience of the moon, just as this phenomenon, this immediate thing, is transformed by knowing that it's a body that revolves around the Earth as opposed to part of a celestial sphere, something like that. One thing we haven't mentioned that's brought up at the beginning and throughout all four chapters is the way in which our thinking about the world is part of dealing with the struggle of being alive and the fact that we need to make decisions 
and choices to rationalize the world and make it possible to live. And it's both the good things in the world and the things that we suffer through that we have to deal with. It's in my edition, it's on page 26, it's near the end of chapter one. This issue, like having a, a planet or whatever, he characterizes it in terms of invariance. Is we can deal with the variable and the precarious only by means of the stable and the constant. Invariance, in quotes, for the time being, are as much a necessity in practice for bringing something to pass as they are in mathematical functions. So, you know, we were talking earlier about events and the kind of transitory nature of them that he wants to emphasize, that even for things that seem constant, that that's a bit of a myth, but also but partly a myth that we bring to it through our, our philosophy, not denying that the invariance that we pick, that we say, well, the table is, is something that's invariant, or atoms are something invariant, that those invariants are there as part of rationalizing the world and making the variable, the precarious, understandable by referring to things that are stable and constant, at least stable and constant for some amount of time or in some perspective. That is the theme of chapter two. He brings it up in chapter one, but then all of chapter two is about that existence as precarious. Yeah. That existence is full of risk. Uh, The world is scary, objectively. I mean, this explains why we come up with the secondary, whenever we come up with these abstractions, and he says it's a matter of choice, how we abstract from primary experience. And choice doesn't mean just like arbitrary, da-da-da, I'm going to do this today, especially when we're talking about these things. Why did we break up the world into physical objects in the way that we do? Well, because of the instrumental purposes we find they serve. What does instrumental purposes mean? Well, they help us ultimately to keep alive. He was very influenced by Darwin. And he wants to give a kind of evolutionary take on, uh, you know, that's what, what functionalism kind of means to him. But we should say instrumental will have a much yes, broader yes. meaning. But he means it in the, in the starkest possible sense in this section. Right. So that the dangerousness of the world is ultimately what gives rise to all intellection, all creating of these secondary reflective things. Everything really that pushes culture forward, but it also has led to philosophers, and he sounds very much like Nietzsche here. I really read him throughout this, especially at the beginning, as how Nietzsche will not even argue against views sometimes. He'll just make imputations about the people's motives in having the philosophy in the first place. There's a lot of genealogy in here. Yes, yes. yes. So he's trying to say why philosophers get it wrong, and really it's a psychology of why we make these errors. Think back to our Augustine episode. So Augustine is a great foil for most of this book because he just explicitly says anything that is transient can't be relied on, not ultimately real. The only thing that is real would have to be a permanence, would have to be God, something that transcends, exists outside of the experienced world. And so that then debases, of course, anything that you actually do experience because that could at best be a shadow. You know, of course, this is derived from Plato. And it's funny that Dewey seems to think that this is in some sense or another applicable to all philosophy, not just the rationalists, not just the Platonists, but that, you know, he talks about Aristotle in this way. He talks about if you focus on sense data, you know, so that's something that's really far from a Platonic view, that what's really real is just red patch here and that somehow Think of Wittgenstein's Tractatus, that we can build a world out of that kind of thing. 
logical atomism or something like this, that these are all hypostatizing the transient. They're abstracting from experience, either by saying that there's something behind experience, you know, a, a thing in itself that's motivating experience, that's unifying experience, or even taking a bit of experience itself, like Red Patch here, and saying that's the foundational elements of the world. And Dewey says there's no rational reason for this. It's really just an emotional reason. We can explain genetically. In other words, we can explain why people would have come to believe this. But really, there is no rationalization for any, like you were saying, Wes, that when we think of ontology, when we think of the levels of reality that things have, the levels of being, it just gets flattened out. Like there's just no, in his metaphysics, there's no room for that kind of gradation. So chapter three kind of gives the flip side of that, which is instead of just talking about the scary things, he wants to talk about human enjoyment. Human experience is preoccupied with enjoyment, that you could sort of go too far in giving functional analyses of things like anthropologically, why did this native tribe have these customs? Or think about the way Freud talks about almost anything, because this behavior serves some deeper need. You know, that sounds like stuff that Dewey should buy. But he wants to make the point here that just doing things for the pure pleasure of it, for the immediate consummatory experience, what he calls, for an end in itself, that's a primary motivation. Right. And that's prior to knowledge. And it's prior to labor and where knowledge and labor focus on connections. This aesthetic is focused on these immediate experiences. And then he explains how this sort of conflation of the aesthetic and the rational where you sort of hypostatize the, is that how you Hypostatize say it? is the way I say it, but I don't Hypostatize, because I know you're going to send me an email <laughs> correcting me if I don't correct it now. Uh, hypostatize the object of immediate enjoyment as a transcendent reality. That's sort of what we get, where we get the metaphysics of form in Plato yep. and Aristotle, which in turn forecloses the experimental, because what you get is this world of unchanging ends that are for the sake of stability, whereas science requires digging into the muck of the flux. Yeah, and he has a, I mean, this is a long chapter, as all of them are, and has a few stories about the evolution of the view of ends, of teleology, the stuff about ends that we've already sort of stumbled into in this this discussion so far is, I think, one of the hardest things in this whole book for me to understand. Yeah. And then chapter four, though, is where he gets more into the not just nature as a, as an end in itself, but turning the end into a means. It, it's about science, nature, means, and knowledge. And that's where he really gets into the character of intellectual meaning is is instrumental and what instrumentalism yeah. is. So you, you take this experience, which is this absorbing aesthetic thing, and then you make that a tool for something else, which he talks about as sort of being a tool means to embody sequential bonds in other words you think of what it's good for or you you have predictions about what this does or he calls them predictive signs as well and at that point the thing you're experiencing becomes less of an aesthetic object the aesthetic part weakens and what you have before you is an instrumentality although he does talk a lot about how when we do labor and we use tools we sort of pretty them up we make them aesthetic in order to make work have that quality of the aesthetic well it's, it's also part of the way objects, objective relations are established. He says a tool is a particular thing. It possesses an objective relation as its own defining property. So one of the things that a tool does is define objects. 
he calls them indices at one point, uh, tools and indice of an index. So when we think about the objects of physics, for instance, they're a way of uniting appearances in a serial for, for the hit, for the sake of control of, of nature and things like that. So objects in that sense. Yeah. 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 So at the end of the, this is at the end of the third paragraph, he says, man's bias towards himself easily leads him to think of a tool solely in relation to himself, to his hand and eyes but its primary relationship is toward other external things as the hammer to the nail and the plow to the soil. Only through this objective bond does it sustain relation to man himself and his activities. A tool denotes a perception and acknowledgement of sequential bonds in nature. That I took to mean that objects themselves come out of this notion of sequential bonds in nature. In some ways, that's the way in which you get a hole that becomes an object. And maybe I'm reading more into it than that. Yeah, we, I thought we had the immediate grasp of what we think of as objects. I thought we had an initial immediate grasp. and then In the sense that they're instrumental, all those objects are instrumental in some way. They come out of a series of causality that makes them objects for you. And in that way, he probably means something more specific particular by tool here, but the way in which objects arise, I took is to be very similar to the way he's talking about sequential bonds of nature in tools. Based on everything we've said so far in characterizing him, it seems very hard to say that somehow table presents itself as table immediately to our experience, right? Without at least saying a lot about how embedded it is. And then that embeddedness would seem to come along with a whole bunch of instrumentality, a whole bunch of series of causes that make it so that, okay, that's what I mean by table. Yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I mean, I think it gets us back to the sense in which our experiences are theory-laden. I mean, I think he thinks yes, there's exactly. this primary experience that is really is sort of devoid of this instrumentality. And now it's a question of, well, yeah, do can we ever have that now of a table? As soon as you talk about something as an object, yes. then you are talking about it as something in a sequence of causes. Exactly. Where do you get that? I'm just deriving that from what was just being said here. That's the way I interpret that section that I just read. Yeah, I don't think as, so, but yeah. As ahead. far as I understand his theory of education, so I actually listened to some of his Democracy and Education book. It's available as a LibriVox thing. Just sort of enough the first several chapters to kind of see how it matches with what we were reading. And the primary point of the book is just that people don't learn just by being told stuff. Don't just sit the kids in a classroom and tell them stuff. They learn through interacting. They learn through experimentation. So that's exactly on, you know, in, in accordance with what we read here. So you might think that if you show a baby a table, like the baby is not going to distinguish that table from anything else that's around it. It's only when the, when the baby then starts pushing and shoving at the table and getting up on the table, doing things with the table, that the table gets distinguished as an object and as a table at all. Well, there's nothing in this text, though, that says that. <laughs> Isn't that just what you were saying, Dylan, that you make the table into a, instead of just as yep. an end, in other words, as a primal aesthetic experience, something that you're just contemplating, you make it into a means. Mm -hmm. You relate it to other fulfilling things you know you try little experiments with the table you lean against it and feel its hardness i don't see that as the grounds for a for making it an object there's no distinction for him there's it's, it's an object from the beginning and i think you guys i mean i agree with you that you transform that object that experience any of that stuff you do continually transforms it but there's no problem with calling these raw absorbing 
finalities, calling that an object of experience. I don't think he would make that distinction. Or is it isn't it an event? The perceiving event that includes the object. And once you make the distinction between the event and the object, you're already doing some he, theory. He very carefully avoids the word object, I think, through this whole <laughs> this whole thing. He's gonna have have to have something to say at some point about the way in which some objects kind of leap out to us based upon their boundaries in time and space. He doesn't really talk in those terms, that the way in which we pull things out. He talks more in the way Mark was summarizing the process of coming up with an object to me rings almost directly in line with chapter four and his account of science and the process of science of figuring things out and coming up with transforming the world into new kinds of objects. And it, it may be that there's more to say about that, that objects aren't simply that way. I mean, he could go sort of, he could go two ways with it. He could say that just by our psychology and the way we experience the world, that we pull things out as objects, even though they're somehow even unnameable as to what they are, but they come out as individual holes of some sort. And that is distinct from the process of generating objects like the objects of science. Well, the objects of science certainly are not part of the continuum, right? Those are the things that are, are not real in this sense. They are instrumental there are models that have this instrumental value for the objects of our of experience, but they are not themselves objects in the same sense as objects of experience. See, that's funny that I interpreted, so looking page 11, he talks about progress in science as coming up with more efficacious instrumentalities for dealing with the conditions of life and action. And the way that I read that was that he's actually putting tools like the telescope, so an actual object, and a concept like the molecule or whatever the thing the, mo- the word molecule <laughs> refers to, so the object molecule, and also methods for investigating predictive scientific laws, these are all instrumentalities. That these yes. are all objects in this sense. I didn't get the idea that, where did you find that he emphasizes that they're unreal? Go to page 138. So to treat, therefore, the object of science which in effect is the object of physics, as a complete and self-sufficient object, the end of knowing, is to burden ourselves with an unnecessary and insoluble problem. So the objects of science are not even objects of... There's a lot in this about how we grasp these immediacies, but that they're not knowledge, and then knowledge comes about with our scientific relation. But the point is that we can't reify the objects of physics. So because it commits us on the one side to a realm of immediately apparent things perceptual order and then the other side to the so what i'm trying to say is that this realm of experience is the the real things and the scientific models are are not to be reified as as real they have this instrumental utility for dealing with the appearances for managing experience for getting better ends than we might otherwise get endings sorry than we might otherwise get but but I i thought that was true of everything it's not just true of science and it all turns on this phrase right after the second hyphen as complete and self-sufficient object. That's the part that he objects to. Well, the immediacies are complete and self-sufficient. Oh, I, I don't, that seems wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't, Mark. Because he makes a big deal about how... They depend on nothing else. So he makes it, but he, he, he talks about how they are ultimate. Yes. 
So that's the sense in which all every one of those immediacies is a natural end. But I'd have to find the exact text here. I, um, I thought an end actually does imply yeah. that it is a manifestation of something that came before. That's what it means that it's an end, an ending. It's that it's an appearance in the sense that it is, I shouldn't even use the word appearance, but it's something that comes up, presents itself in experience as being the result of some past thing. So it's ultimate in that it, there's nothing in that experience where we're looking at it merely as a means and thinking about what's going to come next. We're appreciating it for what it is, not as a means to an end, but it is itself is not self-sufficient in that it implies things before. Yeah. So it's not the case that being a child is simply an unrealized adult. There is being a child right? But it's not, that isn't all alone by itself either. It has a history to it. And it also, he wants to preserve it, has a potentiality to it. It has a way out and a way into it. And that's true of all things. And that's basically what an event is, is that to the extent that we call them, every event has a transitory nature to it. It has things coming in and things going out. It's a end and a means, I thought the disagreement here was about what he's calling the real. So he's denying reification to these scientific models, but I don't think he would deny reification to what's in primary experience. Those are by definition reified. Well, I don't think he's privileging objects as being real. I think he is, yeah. The immediate objects, Wes is saying. Yeah, immediate objects of experience is real, yeah. There are scientific objects, but those are just objects in a derivative sense. We're speaking loosely when we sure. call those objects. Then we're brought back to the question of where's the line between quote-unquote immediate objects of experience and these other things. To me, I read him as that there may be a way in which that line moves along where things that were once not immediate objects of experience become immediate objects of experience because of their embeddedness. That's how I was reading him. So that in the way in which a table is an object is not, it might be an immediate object of experience at some point, but it's not that way until you bring in the causal structure to make it so. I think you're right in the sense that before you are aware of its instrumentality, it's not a table in, in the definitional sense, right? But the immediacy part comes in this object that we call a table and that where we, of course, have in mind all its instrumentalities, someone completely naive of that say an infant, could just have the immediate experience. So you see what I'm saying? But they wouldn't have an immediate experience of a table. They would have an immediate experience of that thing. This yes, is not a yes. real distinction we're making. This is the sense and reference problem. I'm talking about the thing itself, <laughs> not the descriptive connotations of the word table. I understand, but this is what I was talking about before as maybe it's all in that phrase that you're calling the immediate objects of experience, but the way in which we break the world up into things that are this and that here and now along some kind of set of boundaries that are quote-unquote natural, but also have to do with the way in which we process the world. So they end up being things and objects that are separable in some way. I would agree that those would somehow constitute immediate objects of experience without having any instrumentality associated with them. So I think our frustration with Dewey is that he kind of promises in this empiricism in this naturalistic empiricism it sounds like he's going to do something like phenomenology he almost says to the things themselves like he mm -hmm. he doesn't want philosophy to get too theoretical he wants it to pay attention to concrete things but then he doesn't give a lot of 
individual example. He right. doesn't actually do the normal thing you would do in epistemology and like, now I'm contemplating the table and what can I say about, is it a table or it is not a table? And how do I know it's there? You know, he doesn't play that game. He hardly talks about tables at all, even though we spent the past half an hour talking about He tables. does talk about a chair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> can we find where, where he actually talks about the chair? It's on 18. Oh, he says, an author writes. Oh, this is page 16. I'm sorry. I just searched on chair. No, yeah. So in 18, he's talking about how it's not reducible to sense data because that would be reducing an experience to the property mm-hmm. of the active experiencing. Well, yeah, but the reason he's doing this is because he's brought this up on page 16 in the context of a view he's arguing against. That he says the kind of epistemology that I hate. Right. And he doesn't even like the word epistemology. He uses theory of inquiry or experimental logic. Or actually the words he uses according to the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So someone else gives the example of the chair being reducible to sense data. Two points are involved in any such statement. One is that experience is reduced to the traits connected with the act of experiencing, in this case the act of sensing. Certain patches of color, for example, assume a certain shape or form in connection with qualities connected with the muscular strains and adjustments of seeing. These qualities which define the act of seeing when it is made an object of reflective inquiry over against what is seen thus become the chair itself for immediate or direct experience. So, yes, it's the table itself that you see. It's not that you build it up out of sense data. Yep. And then where does he take that? If we ever get back to this total chair, it will not be the chair of direct experience, of use and enjoyment, a thing with its own independent origin, history, and career. It will only be a complex of directly given sense qualities. But, so you're right. What we experience in primary experience is the chair with its uses yep. and history and all that stuff yes. picked out as, does he use the word object here? But certainly there's no problem with calling it an object. It's just not in that sense an object of science. Or is it? The object of experience are things like tables. Mm-hmm. But as Dylan is right, you know, we might not see a table as a table in the strict sense of if we're naive enough. But it's that thing, though, we can have this primary experience of it. Yeah, and this chair of direct experience, just reading what his opinion is, what his claim is in the middle of that last sentence, the chair of direct experience is one of use, of enjoyment, a thing with its own independent origin, history, and career. So now I'm beginning to think Dylan is, has a good point here. <laughs> but I don't think it's Dewey's point. I just, I'll put it on my calendar, Wes. Because <laughs> I don't think you can get a primary experience with all this use and enjoyment part of it without it already having been transformed by its relationship to utility. Yeah, because that's what learning is. So anybody that could be having this conversation has already bitten from the tree of knowledge, <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. It, <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't talk about any of this. What Mark just said is a direct quote. <laughs> From somewhere, in some other context. Here. Yeah, it's in, the, it's in the fourth chapter. That, no, it has nothing to do with this issue. To talk about the Garden of Eden, that's where he's talking about labor is, you know, it's the beginning of the labor chapter where, you know, labor is traditionally thought of as laborious. No, but the, but the idea that you've already, went, knowledge is already bitten. He's not using that example for that point. No, he's not using that example here. You're right. But the labor chapter is, the point of that is it's, a genetic account of how we get objects of science. That mm-hmm. The reason yeah. that we would investigate these kind of things is because we want to do something with the table, because we have labor. We want to eat off of it, <laughs> so we have to do experiments. Now, the better example for science, though, is, you know, you have these elements, for instance, which are just aesthetic objects, you know, gases or something like that. And then you can begin to do experiments that 
create these sequential orders. So for instance, Dalton with the development of atomic theory, where you say, okay, if I combine oxygen and carbon, I can use like 133 grams of oxygen for 100 grams of carbon or 266. And so I see these discrete weights combining and then I come up with atomic theory because I know it's not continuous, that they're just these discrete combinations that will give me CO or CO2, a thing like that. So I can start out in a very, very naive position with these appearances, which will become the elements of science by creating these causal sequences, by instrumentalizing them. So that's all I'm saying with the whole primary aesthetic experience. The table is a more complex example. Wouldn't the corresponding thing with the table be you could contemplate a tree aesthetically and insofar as you're just stuck on, you know, maybe you're, you're a tree worshiping society. As far as you're just stuck on that, then you do not advance. And as soon as you are able to put that aside, put aside your eulogizing and aesthetically experiencing the tree to think what you can do with the tree, the fact that you can well, what if I chop it down? What if I cut the pieces up? What if I make something? Hey, that works pretty well to hold my food up. Yeah, although I think he would think more paradigmatically, figure out how the tree works, figure out that there are cells, because I think we don't want to limit this idea of practicality to this idea that, oh, you can make tables out of trees. The instrumentality is more about the way in which I can be predictive. That's the instrumentality part. I can come up with some theory that's explanatory in this case, that is also explanatory of future events, future phenomena. So that's the utility. It's not just, oh, I can create technologies with this or, or stuff that's useful. Well, that's an interesting connection that he sketches out at some length, I thought, between what you're talking about is just being able to predict. So that's sort of close to pure science, you know, to really just know something for him is still going to be to know how it interacts with other things, to know how to predict its behavior. It's still applied in a certain way. But it gives a genetic account then of, well, the reason, you know, we have that ethic of science, the reason that we've developed the methods is because of survival, because of fear, because of labor that we had to do to survive, you know, for actually very concrete, lowbrow, instrumental things. But he does want to say, unlike it's one of the common criticisms of pragmatism that surely you can't just say that the truth is just what personally benefits you or something. And this is kind of what he wraps up chapter four with is railing against this kind of unfortunate association of the practical with the commercial yeah. or the self-serving that no, no practical just means you're trying to accomplish something. Also, he rejects the idea that an inquirer should be motivated only by practical application, only by, hey, I'm going to create a technology with this. So he gives both the commercial thing and this whole motive thing. This is on page 164. Well, but he says that the, and this reminded me of Nietzsche's On Truth and Lie, of why would we have a passion for truth? Well, it's because of a moral yes. thing, according to Dewey. Yep. So it itself, anything that's moral, is really an ultimately practical thing. You know, like our preference for the settled over the precarious. Yeah, so this confused me. What would then be a non-applied science? Because he's saying that applied sciences are better. Mm. And then he's saying it's understandable that people wouldn't think applied sciences are better because of this association with the idea that the motive should only be practical application or that it should be commercial. But he never, as far as I can tell, clearly says what the difference between... Because if you think in this broad sense, everything is an applied science, right? The way you just talked about it, Mark. 
I, mean, I thought at that point he was doing a kind of conventional applied uh, civil engineering as an applied science kind of thing, as opposed to trying to figure out the nature of light. Yeah, that's the way I took it. But then when Mark was talking about this more general way of taking applied, how do we reconcile that? Well, I thought that he was spending a lot of time trying to say that applied sciences are no problem. I took that as dovetailing with the idea that in some ways all sciences are applied in the sense of trying to solve problems and pragmatic in that respect. Even though you may have the desire to try to solve the problems for the sake of solving the problems, not for the sake of a commercial interest or for trying to heat your house or something like that. You could be motivated by solving them aesthetically. So he says on page 161, what is sometimes termed applied science may then be more truly science than what is conventionally called pure science. For it is directly concerned not with just instrumentalities, but instrumentalities at work and affecting modifications of existence in behalf of conclusions that are reflectively preferred. This means that you're right about it being something like civil engineering or something like that. It means applied in our conventional sense of applied. Because the reflectively preferred just means we want to do something with it. And he wants to make this distinction between applied and pure. So I don't think we can just think of every science as applied in some broad sense. That's not, he's trying to make a distinction here. Well, in fact, he says at page 163, he goes into, and 162 is the distinction between application and then pure science. So he's only saying that about, you know, that applied science is more truly science because he's spent this whole chapter telling us the definition of a scientific object, that a scientific object is an instrumentality. So (laughs) explicitly practical investigation into a technology is more truly doing what science by its definition sets out to do. But he does, you know, in 163, he gets to the point where he wants to justify the idea that history and anthropology, which are not typically even considered sciences, are actually applied sciences. So Right. So the very last sentence of the entire chapter... The genuine interests of pure science are served only by broadening the idea of application Mm -hmm. to include all phases of liberation and enrichment of human experience. So that's why I was saying that it's... I see. uh, Just wanting to know for knowledge's sake is something that ultimately has a a moral and thus practical bent. Not necessarily because it's charitable or something like that, but we think it's part of the good life, part of virtue, something like this, to satisfy curiosity, to deepen our knowledge of all things. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just only if we lose track of where that motivation came from, that it comes from fundamental human needs and not just, you know, like we're hitting on what God meant for us to do or something like that. For pure science sake, the way his culture normally takes it, I think he would see as some sort of abstraction, some bastardization in the same way that he objects to most other kinds of philosophy here. Yeah, in discussing the paragraph that starts with pure science, where he's trying to link them, go back to applied sciences, if we could free ourselves of a somewhat abject notion, it would be clear enough that what makes any proposition scientific is its power to yield understanding, insight, intellectual at-homeness in connection with any existential state of affairs by filling events with coherent and tested meanings. In fact, he puts pure and applied in quotes, which now more than ever made me think that those are adjectives which he thinks are misplaced, that are based upon baggage that we have on these things, and that it's all really just science. It's all about yielding understanding, insight, and intellectual at-homeness. 
Yes. And ultimately, science is continuous with any kind of inquiry, with what he wants philosophy to be. Yes. Every day, kind of, you know, where did I leave my keys? There's that kind of inquiry. It's all the difference between them is just the amount of sophistication that's involved in those secondary reflective objects that are involved that yes. you don't bring great things to bear in finding your keys. There's no quantum field theory equations to solve. Unless you think that they are have slipped into an alternate reality. And <laughs> a wormhole. Kind of- we might have to, we have to bust out some equations. You don't think you could have an interesting inquiry into where your keys are? <laughs> <laughs> you can write that up as a blog post. We'll see how many people... <laughs> The counterfactuals involved and the, yeah. Let's recap where we are right now. We've gone through. We've jumped around. We've jumped around a lot, but we've we've got all the major points out there. We've said what bridging the bifurcation of nature amounts to. No, that's a terrible way of putting it. That's not even his term. He uses something similar. I mean, I know that's Whitehead's term. It's the fallacy of selective emphasis. Well, yeah, that leads to it. But the idea that experience is double-barreled that it, mm-hmm. quote, recognizes no division between act and material, subject and object, but contains them both in an unanalyzed totality. So that's kind of an assumption, though, right? That's the starting point. Yeah. And, and his justification for that is that it's what science assumes and that practice starts and ends in experience, scientific practice, which is undeniably true. So Yeah. And these chapters are, in some ways, a criticism of philosophy or philosophy so far, which is, I guess, always what philosophers do. And this point of selective emphasis, he says, selective emphasis choice is inevitable whenever reflection occurs. This is not an evil. Deception comes only when the presence and operation of choice is concealed, disguised, denied. Empirical method finds and points to the operation of choice as it does to any other event. Thus, it protects us from conversion of eventual functions into antecedent existence, a conversion that may be said to be the philosophic fallacy, whether it be performed on behalf of mathematical subsistences, aesthetic essences, the purely physical order of nature or God. So yeah, the conversion of the eventual into the antecedent Yes, is this conversion of what I called epistemic values of unity and stability, the things we desire out of inquiry, into something that is antecedently there in nature and that we just have to grasp. Yeah, and this goes to the struggle with refusing to talk about things as being real, because that process that West just referred to ends up being what we mean by the real, those things that are actually there. And Dewey really just wants to not worry about that. Well, he talks a lot about this version of knowing that he rejects, which is this idea that we simply have a grasp. Let me find a good, yeah, page 86. For knowledge is a memorandum of conditions of their appearances. There's nothing behind this veil of sensation or something like that knowledge is a memorandum of the condition of their appearances concern that is with sequences coexistence relations i had mentioned before the knowledge is always pointed towards the relational it's never pointed towards a reified substance like thing immediate things may be pointed to by words but not described or defined and i assume he means these immediate ineffable experiences here description when it occurs is but part of a circuitous method of pointing or denoting Sounds uh, like something we've just been reading about. Index to a starting point and road, which if taken may lead to a direct ineffable presence. So then modern thinkers get it wrong. Well, I like the next part of the quote that you were reading. Go ahead. Go for it. Modern thinkers influenced by the notion that knowledge is the only mode of experience that grasps things, assuming the ubiquity of cognition and noting that immediacy 
or qualitative existence has no place in authentic science, have asserted that qualities are always and only states of consciousness. It is a reasonable belief that there would be no such thing as consciousness if events did not have a phase of brute and unconditioned isness of being just what they irreducibly are. Yeah. So the other part of this is on 88, where you talk about cognition or knowing as grasping essences or elsewhere, he's going to talk about treating scientific models as if they are, instead of the atom being this thing that we develop to instrumentally manage experiences, we reify that and think of that, oh, it was there all along, and then we grasped it. We metaphysicalize it. So that's what he objects to as a model of knowing. Yeah. He thinks that when you do that, you close off the possibility of knowing at all. So it does two things. One is that if it were even true, then there would be nothing left to be known or nothing left to be figured out because everything would be static, which I'm not sure about that part of his argument. But then it's also that the way in which elements are part of wholes, but not wholly by themselves, is the way in which you are able to get relations at all. So at the end of the paragraph that we were just reading from, to dispose of things in which relations terminate by calling them elements is to discourse within a relational logical scheme. Only if elements are more than just elements in a whole, only if they have something qualitatively their own, can a relational system be prevented from complete collapse. So even these elements that we have and call them individual elements, they have to point outside themselves. Otherwise, you can't have a relation. Yeah. So this talk of historicism, just looking in the in the preface on the first page, the course of the ideas is determined by a desire to apply in the more general realm of philosophy, the thought which is effective in dealing with any and every genuine question. The constant task of such thought is to establish working connections between old and new subject matters. We cannot lay hold of the new, we cannot even keep it before our minds, much less understand it, save by the use of ideas and knowledge we already possess. So... Not only does this bring mind the overall historical take that you were just showing how it's applied in understanding the things of science or perceiving anything at all is to get some idea of its history, but I was brought to mind our Gadamer's hermeneutics discussion that you only know things, I guess it's an age-old problem of knowledge, right? How do you learn anything new? You have to have the tools to understand something in order to understand it. But if you have the tools to understand it already, why didn't you already understand it? That's kind of a bastardization of, mm -hmm. of one way of putting one of the platonic uh, things. And so that's the dynamic that's involved in any kind of knowledge and the historical progression of knowledge is by using what you've got and trying to reconcile it with some new piece of data and then the two inform each other. So what you've already got on your plate informs how you understand the new thing and then the new thing in turn ricochets back and refines your understanding of the old thing. We already used the table as an example of just our interaction with everything involves an ongoing bringing our own expectations and experiences and, and then contemplating the thing itself, that new experience, and having those feed each other in a historical process. And that's what getting knowledge, that's what science is all about. It's not just a matter of mutely like an infant pushing and pulling at a table or something, but a matter of 
bringing to bear these large-scale scientific concepts and things and numerous connections, not just this object with an experiment that I happen to do on it right now. In the preface, I have a number of places where I just wrote yes in the side of the book. His experience is not a veil that shuts man off from nature. Is it a means of penetrating continually further into the heart of nature? There is yep. in the character of human experience no index hand pointing to agnostic conclusions, but rather a growing, progressive self-disclosure of nature itself. The failures of philosophy have come from lack of confidence in the directive powers then here in experience, if men have but the wit and courage to follow them. Yeah, which I found a little weird that he that he's ultimately saying that the failures of philosophy are from a lack of confidence. We have not had the sufficient courage that that element is in there. Well, it's the lack of confidence and experience. To me, I mean, this particular quote was directed at, I take sort of one of the two big prongs that he's assailing in the history of philosophy, one that denies the truth of experience and amounts to saying that our everyday experience is lying to us and what is really true lies beyond and outside of our experience. And that's what that's directed at. Whereas he's saying throughout that our experience and our intellects will sort that out. And it's not that our experience is lying to us, it's that we have to figure out what our experience is of. Well, and bringing to mind, you know, I was saying Augustine could be his whipping boy in this yeah. book and think about sort of Nietzsche's take on Augustine. Nietzsche would very much assail Augustine and Schopenhauer and, you know, for being cowardly for the fact that Augustine says, Oh, you can't rely on those things that are going to just disappear. Everybody's going to die. Yep. It's all going to fade. We have to retreat somehow and subvert the self to contemplating the eternal to contemplating God, that that's a cowardly way out. That this is almost going right back to our Camus episode at the very beginning, like confront the, well, Dewey's not going to say it's the absurdity of experience, but the brute fact, the brute existence as it is given to us. And it can't be any accident that some of his language, especially regarding hazard and precariousness of life, is at least imbued with the fact that this is written at the closing of World War I in 1919, right? 25, I thought. 25, okay. So reflecting on the ends of World War I. I mean, not that he ever mentions it in particular, but it, the characteristic of life and living as being not just about the good things, but about the bad things, and that our thinking and rational activity is about dealing with the precariousness of life well, and another point that I think he thinks you need courage and confidence and experience to, you know, one of the big points of this book, according to the preface, is he thinks his method can be genuinely naturalistic, yet maintain cherished values, provided they are critically clarified and reinforced. So one of the things he rips on in here is materialism and the idea you know, that one of the things that comes with this bifurcation of nature is that you take all values and put them only in the head. They become merely subjective things because how could they exist out in the physical world if what's outside of us is something, at least one of the ways of being a naturalist is just to be a straight up physicalist. And so it just creates a problem. Yeah. This is actually, so he, after he talks about this idea that Greek aesthetic idea of knowledge is these final ends, then you get this sort of rebellion against ends with the scientific revolution. And there are no longer ends in nature. They're only in the head. And then what explains, you know, your subjective experiences are the mechanical 
relations in this other realm, you know, so atoms and things like that are, you know, corpuscles of light and, and so on. So that's just as bad for him as the Greek account because we lose qualitative immediacy, he says, as part of the world. Qualitative immediacy just becomes a part of personal consciousness. I mean, should we jump to try to talk about ends? That seems like one of the difficult issues that we haven't taken on yet. Yeah, let's try it. So that's in chapter three. So this is actually, yeah, so right after he talks about the sense in which the scientific revolution banned talk of ends on 96, this is where Dewey is going to say, all right, I'm going to retrieve some of the ancient account. It's just that the aesthetic is going to remain in immediate experience. The aesthetic is not going to be conflated with the rational object of knowledge, the metaphysical object of our knowledge. Could we just say a little more, since people don't have Plato maybe right ready to mind what that amounts to? And in fact, he goes through both Plato and Aristotle here in the section of the kind of his genealogy. So basically the idea is that the Greeks conflated the appreciation of beauty and the aesthetic with the rational, so that what you get with say, a platonic metaphysics where these forms, you know, the idea that the fundamental reality of things is supposed to be these platonic forms and the contemplation of these things, he sees that as a sort of aesthetic type of engagement because it's simply contemplative. It's more appreciative than it is anything else, right? It's not any sort of practical activity in this world. It becomes a theology. And in Aristotle, it becomes... Even though that, so the organism, for instance, is sort of modeled on the idea of labor and its work is towards the end of being itself, being what it is. He goes through the classical case, if, you know, essentially Plato and Aristotle, and then the rebellion against it in the birth of the new science, and then wants to sort of split it down the middle. So in 90 is where it begins with the account of the ancient Greeks. So basically the idea is that Greek art and philosophy amounted to a joy in the unchanging. So... Here's a quote. Form was the first and last word of philosophy because it had been that of art. Form is change arrested in a prerogative object. It conveys a sense of the imperishable and timeless, although the material in which it is exemplified is subject to decay and contingency. Well, I have another quote picked out on that same page. Objects are actually aesthetic when they turn hazard and defeat to an issue which is above and beyond trouble and vicissitude. Right. Festal celebration and consummatory delight. Which this reminded me very much of our Nietzsche Birth of Tragedy episode, that he had a very similar take on the Greeks, that the Greeks acknowledged the strife and the trouble and kind of what gives interest and depth to their art in some ways makes it problematic, depending on what exact era of Greece you're talking about, is that they papered over it. That, you know, what it is in their contemplation of beauty is a, well, it could be a defeat, but it could just be an ignoring of this underlying strife, but it's certainly informed by that. It's not innocent. Yeah, I was misrepresenting this sort of by focusing on the beauty part, when really it's about this grasping at the stability for the sake of avoiding the um, precariousness of the, of the world and the precariousness of scientific inquiry. And right in here, and then again at the end of chapter four, I think a couple times in the book, he makes the connection specifically to uh, slavery and the division yep. of labor. Well, he does that here, right? And on page 91. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know, in our, in our, uh, Hannah Arendt discussion, she was kind of rejoicing the fact yeah. that some portion of the populace was able to not worry about the necessities of life. And so they could do this kind of stuff. Well, Dewey 
has a similar appreciation for the fact that philosophy was possible and but thinks, of course, the goal of a democratic society should be spread to everybody, that contemplation is one of the main goods that humans can get into. And it's too bad that in the past it was limited to a few mooters at the top of the food chain. Well, yeah, Dewey is saying that the model of science for the ancient Greeks is predicated on the idea of a leisure class that just contemplates things instead of actually doing any work. And work is bad and lower. And, and so you wouldn't think of science as involving work. Right. So, so Dewey does not have as one of his options, Hannah Arendt's idea of, well, it's not contemplation, but it's not labor either. It's action in this political sense, whatever that meant. You know, right, and we didn't know right. what that meant either. And so it's not surprising that Dewey does not have that on his table. But he, just the fact that he thinks it actually influenced this division, actually influenced and corrupted the philosophy itself. The, the fact that it was so, you know, it forgot its origins in practical activity. It's practical activity that sort of figures out all this stuff. And he talks about artisans, how Plato's talk of forms, Aristotle's talk of forms, and Aristotle's talk of the four types of causation. These all actually came straight out, he, he says, of the experience of artisans in yeah. crafting stuff. You know, when you're making a statue, there's the final cause. In other words, what do you want the statue to look like? There's the material yep. cause. What are you going to make it out of? There's the form. There's what is your ultimate purpose in making it? That all these things gave rise to the notions of, that, that Plato and Aristotle then detached from their sources, were ungrateful to their sources. Well, he, on 92, though, he says, he says Aristotle gives this account, right? Yeah, they detach it, but so Aristotle made nature a skilled laborer that achieves ends, basically. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting paradox where the model is sort of labor-related, but what you get in the end are these fixed ends that are sort of antecedent and already accomplished. The labor, in a sense, is already accomplished, and in some other stable realm, and then the, the flux realm moves in the direction of those ends somehow. Dewey says, philosophers were not the authors of an identification of objects informed with ideal order in proportion with a final and arresting outcome of processes of antecedent change. That identification was at least implicit in the operation of artisans. Nor were the philosophers the originators of the idea that mental appropriation of some objects is intrinsically a state of elevated satisfaction. That fact was given to them in the aesthetic culture of their civilization. What the philosophers are responsible for is a peculiar one-sided interpretation of these empirical facts, an interpretation, however, which has its roots and features of Greek culture. This is the political or social structure that you guys were talking about. Yeah. I thought that part of it was linked to their understanding, according to Dewey, their understanding of the gods, that the gods would never labor and that, you know, the higher classes would be more godlike and therefore more about the eternal and the unchanging and the, the permanent. So you have this problem of ideal forms of them that are always persisting. Then you have all the machinations to try to make our own experience of the world reflective of those forms. You know, the cave in Plato or the teleology or the process becoming more and more perfect in uh, Aristotle. Right. We're bringing this up in the context of ends. And so the thing yes, that he's accusing exactly. the Greeks of is illicitly looking at Plato has this in that he says everybody's inclined toward the good or at least what they think the good is. That that's just the natural way we drift. And, but Aristotle makes this really explicit, even with all the things in nature, so that a rock falls, 
because it is made of earth and earth has as its natural end, really, it's good to go down, to go toward the earth. And so everything has its natural end. The thing that it will, in the absence of something stopping it, pursue is its good. And we've made a lot of use of that when thinking about ethics. It seems one of the only sensible ways to think about ethics is to think about the way in which not that humans actually behave in all circumstances, but that if given a good upbringing, it's hard to use not to use the word good in it, but what they will tend to as a matter of their nature, unless you are, uh, you know, an Augustinian pessimist about human sin, then it seems a promising way to talk about the good. And I think that maybe we don't know because we didn't read the ethics part of this, that Dewey would be okay ultimately with thinking about values in such terms, but clearly to apply it across the board to science and think about why stones move is having anything to do with their good. It was just illicit. And so, yeah, what he says here is that the, the problem is the idea that these unchanging ends are the objects of knowledge. They so to know, to understand something, you have to understand these unchanging ends. So they become these objects of immediate contemplation. Yeah. And the main problem with that is there's no model of experimental inquiry and, and reflection there. You've, yes. you know, your science can't involve any laboriousness or action or, or getting down into the muck of things and experimenting. Yeah. In the paragraph right after the one we were reading, experience afforded no model for a conception of experimental inquiry and of reflection efficacious in action. In consequence, the sole notability, intelligibility of nature was conceived to reside in objects that were ends since they set limits to change. So even though we didn't read Dewey on ethics, we've read enough naturalistic ethicists that we can come up with probably a version of this that will work for that. And it's certainly not that there's an ideal, what would Jesus do? There's not an ideal human that it's our job to conform to that imagined ideals, attributes, that that's what ethics is about. It has to be something more organic, having to do with what you are now and the ways in which you are growing and interacting with your environment and becoming enriched in all these different ways. So you could even say Nietzsche has a version of ethics that sounds very much like that. Yeah. So then we move bottom of page 94 and 95 to this. The scientific revolution does away with that, which in a way is a good thing, right? The ends are no longer the proper objects of science. But the problem is the ends get relegated to the subjective, to personal experience. And that gives us the whole appearance, reality distinction and subject-object distinction. That, that's a no-no that, that he wants to avoid. And that's why he's going to retrieve some of the ancient account, restore some of this aesthetic, but restore it to the non-cognitive, to the immediately grasped, the final, what he calls the final. And, you know, again, this is a place in, on page 96 where he's reasserting what we've already said, which is that our evaluative experiences are just as real as color and smell and so on and so forth. Well, and part of that is the problem of 17th century science in going too far is it flattens everything. And part of recovering ends is recovering events and recovering the individuality of things. So part of it is the subjective experience, but that part of ends which is true about individual events. So there's a great quote on 96. Is there any ingredient of truth in ancient metaphysics that may be extracted and reaffirmed? 
Empirically, the existence of objects of direct grasp, possession, use, and enjoyment cannot be denied. Empirically, things are poignant, tragic, beautiful, humorous, settled, disturbed, comfortable, annoying, barren, harsh, consoling, splendid, fearful. As such, it immediately and in their own right and behalf. So I know we've belabored this point, but I disliked his descriptions of those. <laughs> and also, I did wanted to reemphasize this point that he's retrieving some of the aesthetic account, some of the ancient account with aesthetics, but he wants to disconnect it from knowledge and set us up instead with this non-cognitive, non-knowledge-based immediate grasp of these primary experiences, which are not knowledge. He says that many times. Our relationship to primary experience is not knowledge. Our relationships to the sequences, the relations, that's knowledge. Well, so this is what is confusing about his use of ends. So the sentence right after what you read is, if we take advantage of the word aesthetic in a wider sense than that of application to the beautiful and ugly, aesthetic quality, immediate, final, or self-enclosed, indubitably characterizes natural situations as they empirically occur. Mm -hmm. So it seems like we've got three different use of the word end here, two or three. One of them was the teleological is something that is being aimed at. That's the whole point. But it's not... Not not a person who's aiming at it. It's right. Yeah, nature is aiming at it somehow. Right, and that seems to be what I wasn't sure if he wanted to keep this or not. Natural teleology. No, he's going to reject that because that's. Oh yeah. Okay. So he's in favor of end being the outcome of a series of events. In that sense, it's an ending. And then the way he's saying it's aesthetically, it's immediate, final, or self-enclosed. In other words, it's an end in that it is. He even uses the word self-enclosed here. This is the very beginning of his account, so we could, we could work through it because it is complicated. Okay. I just It's funny that he uses the word self-enclosed here, Wes, that we were objecting to you saying that these primary experiences are self-contained, non-referenced to, to anything else or something like this, when the word self-enclosed seems to mean exactly that. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, in the very next paragraph from what you were reading, Mark, is he makes an aside about how troublesome it is to deal with this issue of ends. And then the next paragraph, he tries to begin to make sense of ends by linking them with beginnings. And this is, to me, part of his really trying to emphasize the event structure of his metaphysics. Mm -hmm. The genuine implications of natural ends may be brought out by considering beginnings instead of endings. To insist that nature is an affair of beginnings is to assert that there is no one single and at once beginning of everything. But it is another way of saying that nature is an affair of affairs, wherein each one, no matter how linked up it may be with others, has its own quality. So he wants to essentially say, well, every ending is a, is a beginning and every beginning is an ending. And it'll make more sense what I'm saying about endings if you just also think about them as beginnings. I guess that's one part of it. So that tries to dull the effect of it being the one true thing to which something is pointing, rather than having it more or less be along a causal process, an evolutionary end, as opposed to a uh, one true end. Part of what he's doing on this page is he wants to get at some more neutral conception of end yes, exactly. than the ancient Greek account. Although, by going through all his adjectives of poignant, tragic, beautiful, it is a little confusing now because he's talking about ends and beginnings merely as endings and beginnings instead of this thing that's tended towards. Yeah, but clearly they both have reference to an observer, it seems. Well, not yet. I mean, he wants to, well, 
Well, that, we're, now we're talking about it in the wrong way. If we talk about an observer yeah. versus the... That's what I don't understand about the way that Dylan just described it. If you, 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 Because uh, we were saying that anything that is the subject of a direct perception, you know, that's primary experience is final, is ultimate in itself. It's yes, not merely, yes. which I understand negatively what that means. In other words, it's not a mere appearance and the ultimate thing is something that's underneath. And, you know, that's the bifurcation of nature thing. That would be a problem. But what does it mean... But it's it's also final, sorry, just in the sense that what it is doesn't depend on anything else. So it is any quality as such as final, it is at once initial and terminal, just what it is okay. as it exists. It's at once initial and terminal. So it's not that it it's presenting itself as the outcome of a historical progression. Right. Yes. And that's why he has when he wants to start thinking about ends by thinking about beginnings and says that saying that nature is an affair of affairs, he's really emphasizing this event structure. And and he'll go on to even clarify, you, typically when we speak of ends, he says that we end up talking about only ends that are good, that we're happy with, you know, and that the fact is, is that things may have ends that aren't good, diseases and accidents and wars, lies and errors, and talking about them as beginnings, but in the end, they're going to be, be ends. So he says, clearly the fact and idea of beginning is neutral, not eulogistic, temporal, not absolute. And he wants to imbue ends with that idea. This is what's so confusing because, yeah, now it looks like this uh, neutral idea has come on the scene where it's just these beginnings or endings of causal sequences. Mm -hmm. Whereas before we had this concept of the finality of immediate experience and the fact that it could be poignant, tragic so on and so forth, which seems a very unneutral. I guess the crux is that there are two ways that human motivations could come in here. And one of them is a good way and is, is an acceptable way. And one of them is a bad way. If the bad way, clearly he's pointing out, is what you just said, that if you only point out as an end something that was actually desirable, well, that's sort of leaving out half the picture. That really, if you're just looking at temporal sequences, you got to see, how did this resolve? How did this resolve? Well, it resolved in that the patient died. That is an ending. And you better admit that. So you don't want your human desire to see things work out well, sort of let you ignore that somehow. Yeah, you're right. That's what he means by neutrality, is that it could just be good or bad. Right. He yeah. says, this, okay. I mean, just the fact that we there's a problem of evil in philosophy, he mentioned somewhere yep. that, well, why isn't there a problem of good, too? Isn't isn't that just <laughs> as weird? That things, But instead, our predispositions make us sort of count only the good. Again, think about Augustine here. Only the, the good is real, and that evil is somehow not... It's just a derivative. It's just lack of human understanding of something. It's not really an ending at all. Because really the end is that the guy went to heaven or something. Like it's the good part is maybe out of our view. But on the other hand, just talking about a causal sequence as having a beginning and an ending is clearly, I think this would be admissible to Dewey to say, has to do with human interests. Like what we count as just like what we are picking out a table as a distinct object, as opposed to the air around the table being part of that object. What makes count something as, as a sequence, as an affair, having this beginning and this ending has something to do with our makeup as people. Maybe not my immediate desire to see something happen, but something about our makeup as expecting beings and our interests in that broader sense, right? It's a choice, the way he puts it. It's an abstraction calling this an affair, this temporal sequence in this location from A to B. That is a choice that we have abstracted that and are calling that an affair and this part the beginning and this part the ending. 
but it's not an arbitrary one, just like all these other choices. It's driven by pragmatic concerns in some broad sense. Well, okay, yeah, we've jumped ahead. <laughs> what you're talking about is on page 101, where, so he says... So it's still this chapter. It's just a really long chapter. No, it's just the, the whole, the where he tries to collapse. The next step is collapsing efficient and final causation. It says we can't distinguish them, which is an interesting, whole interesting discussion in his own right. But where he gets us to is this idea that intent and import are part of every field of consciousness, but not by virtue of a separate mental. Should be on page 101. Sorry, 100. Let's look over field of consciousness if you want to. Well, and on 101, you're getting into this section on static versus dynamic. Yeah, the static versus the point of that is he wants to say final causes don't tug and efficient causes don't push because that implies this sort of transcendent thing. So that's he's revising the notions of static and dynamic so that they don't include any transcendent content. Causality is just the sequential order as a whole. It's not this yep. idea of a mystical force that's pushing things. Yep. Okay, so just to, to clarify for folks, that's what efficient cause meant, according to Aristotle, is this pushing of one thing on another. And the final cause would be sort of the model that things are trying to adhere to. And he's saying no. Yeah, the final cause of the tree is it's trying to be a tree. It's trying to be formally, you know, actualize this, this blueprint for what it is. And efficient cause is just the scientific thing of one billiard ball hitting another and yeah. that we think of as involving the forces of physics and things like that. The important part there is, yeah, is to, to subtract any transcendent content from all that and think of causality just as this sequential order, just as this sequence of events. I mean, I don't know if you're thinking about this part, but it's at the end of this paragraph that you're in the middle of where he summarizes Greek thought and modern thought. So he says... So I actually found it. Okay. So for this reason, and not because of any unique properties of a separate kind of existence called psychic or mental... Every situation or field of consciousness is marked by initiation, direction or intent, and consequence or import. What is unique is not these traits, but the property of awareness or perception. So, in other words, we might be aware of them, in which case that becomes our conscious intent, but the intent is there in the field of consciousness or the situation. That seems to be what he's saying here. This is page 101. The intent is in the situation, even if nobody is paying attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, very much in line, again, with his saying... These things that we normally call mental are not in the head. Yeah. They're out there. But yet he doesn't want to say, it's like the ancient Greek said, that the things apart from any observers have natural aims, have final causes that are tugging them. It's the fact that he doesn't want to separate the mind from nature lets him talk in this confused way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then he, that, that gets us to this idea of the end in view yes. at the bottom of this page, where basically if there is consciousness involved then the event becomes what he calls expectant or commemorative. And the terminal outcome, to use his language, that's anticipated consciously, that's the end in view. So now we have this weird distinction between the intent that's there in the situation, regardless of consciousness, which is a kind of end, I guess, and then the end in view once we've become conscious of it, where we anticipate. So I don't understand it, I admit. <laughs> He does say that for the Greeks, ends are forms, and for the moderns, they're these private things. For him, they are the projections of possible consequences, ends in view, which again seems to be you take perception as a natural fact. You look at these dyads from on high, the subject-object dyad, and I, I don't know. Okay, let's just go back to 103. Primitive man, like naive <laughs> common sense. This we already read. Let's go all the way back to primitive man. 
Primitive man, like naive common sense, imputes terminating qualities to nature, in which follows a sound realistic metaphysics. But it also imputes to them the property of causal determination and imputation rejected by science. Rejection by science does not prove these qualities to be mere subjective or private appearances. It only shows that they are termini, closings of serial events. Do you guys understand that so far? I'm not sure I completely do. Rejection by science. Why is science rejecting? This is just a restatement of when he says primitive man gives terminating qualities yes. to nature. That's the, you know, it's enjoyable and that's a real thing. So, right? That's just yeah. a restatement of what he's said many times before. And then... It imputes to them the property of causal determination, which science rejects. Why does science reject causal determination in things themselves? Naive common sense does by imputing terminating qualities to nature. Because it means that you can become superstitious. Gotcha. Yeah. Every sequence amounts to cause. Yes. That's what superstition is about. Does the next sentence make sense if we interpret it that way? Rejection by science does not prove these qualities to be mere subjective or private appearances. So if I think that the appearance of the goose caused the rain and science rejects that, right. that right. doesn't prove them to be subjective or private appearances. It only shows that they are termini closings of serial events. It shows that as a matter of an experience... It happened that in that experience, right, okay. the rain yep. came after the goose. Exactly. Okay. I think that works. Okay. Events that achieve and possess them are linked, mediatory, transitive, indicative, and the proper material of knowledge. Well, okay. So the superstitious case doesn't work here because the point is if it's proper material of knowledge is you should be able to investigate that. And does rain start every time the goose comes around? No. So that's not something that we would even call causal, even with a casual amount of investigation. There's a process in methodology and science that would sort out that problem by mm -hmm. you know, demanding that these things be repeatable and in front of everybody and not private and so forth. So I think what he's saying here is he likes natural ends and this idea of attributing these finalities, these terminating qualities to nature, as long as you don't see them as causal in any way. If something is good that something prior to that is tending towards that good. So it is good in and of itself, but it's not that it's pulling on things towards it. Wouldn't he purge the word good from any discussion of ends? He's saying that they don't have to be good. They can be all kinds of, they can be bad. They can be... Yeah, I'm going too far to say purge good from anything. He would admit that there were ends that were good and you could discuss them in that manner. Yeah, they could be poignant, tragic, beautiful, humorous, blah, Yes, blah, blah. Yeah. absolutely. But it's not the case that all ends are good. Exactly. Okay. And Mark was going to have us move to this paragraph right after the one he's working on where Dewey summarizes ends a bit. You made me want to go back <laughs> two sentences to read this in terms of final causation. So in other words, primitive man imputes terminating qualities to nature, but it also imputes to them the property of causal determination. In other words, it rains because I need it to rain right. because yes. it'll make my crops grow. Yes. An imputation rejected by science. Well, clearly that kind of thing is rejected by science. Rejected by science does not prove these qualities to be mere subjective or private appearances. It only shows they are termini closings of serial events. Events that achieve and possess them are linked, mediatory, transitive, indicative, and the proper material for knowledge. So I was thrown by the proper material and the for knowledge part by thinking that knowledge only knows something that actually is causal. But knowledge can know anything that is just a sequence even. Yep. All the causal is is a sequence. Yeah, but this saves Mark's understanding about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just that there are different kinds of sequences and science will be able to tell the difference between them. Yes. It's just that's part of investigating right. it is that you can see yeah. goose does not equal rain and my desire for rain does not equal rain. Yeah, the difference yeah. is the regularity, the yeah. repeatability. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. So sequences are knowledge, right? But you could still be wrong, right? <laughs> so that's, yes, that's the same way of saying that my illusion that the sound was in fact scary or that there's water over there when it's actually a mirage. Yes. We can still say the illusion itself is part of nature. Yeah. Even though dreamed table is not going to be in our ontology exactly, you can still talk about that occurrence. Well, it is. the. I mean, it's on the same status as it's just functionally related to other appearance. I mean, that's an important point because okay. if you if you want to talk about ontology, then you have to get into this whole thing of more real objects versus less real. He doesn't want to get into that. He wants to say the dreamed You're right. experience has a different relationship to other experiences than the the non-dream. The only thing I want to change, the way you talked about that earlier, Wes, is that he flattens the various degrees of existence. And I understand that he doesn't want to say that, for instance, appearances have less reality than the things driving them or that God has the ultimate reality or the forms of the ultimate reality. And the, you know, of course, in that sense, he wants to flatten them. But I think he could be open to, he wants to get rid of hierarchies like this, but he could be open to a multiplicity, a multiplicity as revealed through actual experiences. So you might, for practical purposes, say the dream table is not real and the table in the room is real because yeah, just for a practical, yeah. But yeah, you're just, you're not using the words in a metaphysical way, you're using them yep. in a functional way. And yeah, so I, when I'm yeah thinking of flattening, I'm thinking that the, yeah, mind independence, it's this idea of that there needs to be something mind independent to undergird experience, to make it non-solipsistic or to, to say why we can have agreements or disagreements about things and somehow that whatever's doing that can't be in the third dimension it has to get sucked into the picture the two-dimensional appearance picture that's the flattening i'm talking about so i don't know how you do that exactly i have this is i've never understood about pragmatism but there's one illusion in this to this mind independent existence but the point is it's not that there are these real things on some other plane that govern the appearances, there are just these sequences and their regularities in those sequences. And that is somehow the real. Do you see what I'm saying? Instead of it being outside and pushing on and, yes. and swirling up reality and keeping it orderly, yep. the orderliness just is the real somehow. So, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it, you're using your three-dimensional, two-dimensional thing. Isn't it the world at large you'd call three-dimensional? It's all these events and our experience which is the only way in which we get any purchase on it at all, slices through it, maybe only two-dimensionally, that we slice through it and we interact with it. And all that we can grasp about the world outside of ourselves does come through us. But it's not that we deny that it exists, and it's not that we're not trying to figure it out. But inevitably, it comes through that we can't have any experience of it without it going through us, through that two-dimensional plane. The only things that we can learn about the world are through that two-dimensional plane, the things that we can intersect into it. Right. That's definitely one of the huge appeals of pragmatism, I think, is it really does do the things he says, which is it does away with these problems of the relationship of this external real to the appearance and subject-object and things like that. But you have to assume a lot of... It creates new problems <laughs> following his model. But every good theory creates new problems. <laughs> right. And I'm I'm a little torn in the way that you're describing it because you're kind of describing it, you know, like a neo-Kantianism of cutting off the way Dylan was saying it, that we have to get it sort of through ourselves. Well, except that, yeah, a Kantian would need the thing in itself to anchor everything. Right. So that's why I said a neo-Kantian 
you know, a Hegelian or something, which again, he's writing oh, I see what you're saying. by okay. somebody that just cuts off the thing in itself part, but still identifies it. And apparently this is what Dewey did in his earlier writing explicitly is he said, there is no problem of the division between mind and things in the world because the world is sort of defined as that which the world of mind, something like that. Right. And you can see why this book would be criticized for being crypto idealism. He thinks that he had a turn after that and decided that the idealist talk just didn't add anything to the picture, that Dewey was too entranced by actual science. And he thought that we could go to more of a naive realist standpoint. And so that he could really say, it would be very surprising to me if, according to Dewey's analysis, he would have to be committed to saying the dream table is just as real as the table in the world. Because that's an ordinary language well, he says bad things to say about common sense, but it's something that is upheld by scientific inquiry. He wants to retain the terms like reality and even metaphysics. It's not that he's avoiding talk of metaphysics and saying, we're just going to stay within what Kant would call the phenomenal realm. He's saying, well, because the phenomenal realm is all there is, yeah. we can just say yes. this is metaphysically real without any qualification. That is kind of what Hegel said. <laughs> Yeah. Except that he just doesn't use the word everything is spirit, everything is idea. I mean, there must be consequences to that. I'd have to think about, well, what are the consequences of his just saying, okay, these are real things, and he's not going to call it idea, and he's not going to call it matter. He's not going to call it spirit. It's just things. <laughs> yeah. What's different about that than one of these other choices? I heard Dewey criticizing Hegel when he was criticizing a little bit of the partisans of flux the partisans of changing, that Hegel would make the dialectic this one fixed relation out of which, you know, once you transcended that, you would be hunky-dory, you would know everything. That That's what the world really was. And Dewey seems to want to basically at least say that's going too far and it's purging its own activity. It's putting an end to the activity of thinking and thought. Well, by saying that flux is constant, you're reifying something exactly. itself. Yeah, but also remember what his big objections. The big problem with idealism and materialism is it's just they're bad solutions to the subject-object problem, and they don't get rid of it. They don't get rid of the subject-object distinction, and they don't get rid of the appearance-reality distinction. And that's pretty yep. clear in the case of materialism. But a Barclayan idealist and a Hegelian, their whole point, was to get rid of that distinction in some sense, too. Although for Barclay, it ends up being, you know, you get a subject-object thing because you get God's mind versus our minds. And so arguably, and I just haven't thought about it, there's some sense in which idealism still has the problems that Dewey seems to imply they do, which is the subject-object thing, appearance-reality. Well, he had a nice condemnation of Barclay. It's page 140. I'll just start reading at the beginning. If we say rational knowledge is a genuine article, then true reality becomes the reality of materialism or of logical realism or of objective idealism, according to training and temperament. To follow the clues of experience is to see that the so-called sensible world is a world of immediate beginnings and endings, not at all an affair of cases of knowledge, but a succession of qualitative events, while the so-called conceptual order is recognized to be the proper object of science, since it constitutes the scheme of the constant relationships by means of which spare, scattered, and causal events are bound together into a connected history. These emergent, immediate events remain the beginning and end of knowledge, but since their occurrence is one with their being sensibly, affectionately, and appreciatively had, they are not themselves things known. Yeah. That the qualities and characters of these... So this is materialism for us. This is not Barclay yet. That the qualities and characters of these immediate apparitions are tremendously modified when they are linked together by, quote, physical objects, that is, by means of the mathematical, mechanical objects of physics, is a fact of the same nature that a steel watch spring is a modification of crude iron ore. He's giving his own view here. 
Okay. The immediate events are the beginning, the bookends of knowledge. The knowledge is of the relations. And this is where he says they are had, but they're not known. The knowledge is directed towards the causal sequence. Oh, okay. Yes. The having is directed towards the immediacy. Yeah. Yeah. The objects of physics subsist precisely in order to bring about this transformation. To change, that is, causal endings into fulfillments and conclusions into ordered series with the development of meaning therein involved. All right, so the part where he starts bashing on Barclay is after that. Practically all epistemological discussion depends on a sudden and unavowed shift to and fro from the universe of having to the universe of discourse. At the outset, ordinary empirical affairs, chairs, tables, stones, sticks, etc. are called physical objects, which is obviously a term of theoretical interpretation when it's so applied, carrying within itself a complete metaphysical commitment. Then physical objects are defined as the objects of physics, which is, I suppose, the only correct mode of designation. But such objects are clearly very different things from that of the plants, lamps, thunder, and lightning, rocks, etc. that were first called physical objects. So another transformation, phantasmagoria, in the tableau is staged. The original physical things, ordinary empirical objects, not being the objects of physics, are not physical at all, but mental. Then comes the grand dissolving climax in which objects of physics are shown as themselves hanging from empirical objects now dressed up as mental, and hence as themselves mental. I thought he was giving the transition from Locke to Kant here. Okay, I thought he was going to Berkeley. Because what happens is you start out, these are the physical objects, and then science comes along, and oh, it's not that this thing is actually blue, it's electromagnetic radiation, and it's only solidity, and you know, it's the spatio-temporal that's real, and then blue is a secondary quality that's to be explained away. And then what happens is when you reflect on that in the Kantian step, space and time get sucked into that too, into that hole of the mental. So that's where all objects of physics are shown in themselves hanging from empirical objects now dressed up as mental and hence themselves are mentals. The spatio-temporal, what used to be primary qualities becomes mental as well. But I think your reading works as well. Yeah, I think you're sticking a little too much <laughs> Kantianism in that particular sentence, that the difference between that science is saying it's not chair, it's chair, and then your perception of chair. So what chair is, is something scientific, really. And so what you must be perceiving is only your perception of chair. No, it's the idea that the chairs are made of atoms or something like that. The scientific step is to say the chair isn't really the phenomenal chair, it's the atoms that make it up. And so that's what makes the first step happen, which is to say, since you don't perceive atoms directly, what you must be perceiving is not the real right. chair. You must yeah. be perceiving something in your right. mind. Right. But then somebody says, well, why do you think that the thing in your mind refers to thing atoms out there? The only reason you think that there are atoms, the only reason you came to that conclusion is because of your experiences, because of these things that are mental. And so Barclay then takes the next step to say, oh, well, then the chair itself, the atoms itself, they are if they're derived only from mental things, according to our epistemology of the matter, is they are all mental. So Barclayan idealism becomes a crazy reductio ad absurdum to this whole distinction in the first place. Everything now being mental and the term having lost its original contrasting or differential meaning, a new and different series of transformation scenes is exhibited. Immediate empirical things are resolved into hard sensory data, which are called the genuine physical things, while the objects of physical science are treated as our logical constructions. Turn up anyone? All that remains to constitute... <laughs> <laughs> yes. All that remains to constitute mental existence is images and feelings. Yeah, that's a good summary <laughs> of all the steps. Do you agree with me that this is a sequence of steps that he's rejecting because they start with a mistake? Well, yeah, he's saying this is all a mistake. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So, but right after that on page 142 is when he actually gets to what the features of physical objects actually are. Yeah. 
according to his theory, that we have to consider calling it something physical as opposed to mental is picking out a functional characteristic of yes. it. So he gives four characteristics of what physical objects. Well, immediate things come and go, but physical objects seem to stick around. Spatiotemporal orders capable of mathematical formulation are, by contrast, constant. So that's the first thing. The second one is that they... Substitutions. The second character of objects, yes. I had a little trouble understanding what this meant. The possibility of regulating the occurrence of any event depends upon the possibility of instituting substitutions. By means of the latter, a thing which is within grasp is used to stand for another thing which is not immediately had or which is beyond control. So, for instance, your readings on a dial in the physics lab is substitution for the particles that you're measuring or something like that. Because at the end of that, he says, these become amenable to transformations in virtue of reciprocal substitutions. Is a system of exchange and mutual conversion carried to its limit. This is where some examples would have been nice. Pretty pretty much through the whole book. Because I thought he was just talking about what makes something a physical object, not what makes something an atom. He's talking about the objects of physics. Yeah. Not physical Mm. objects. Yes. Objects of science, scientific objects. What we call physical objects are the objects of immediate experience. The objects of physics are the objects of knowledge instead of immediate experience Mm -hmm. and are not metaphysically real. But isn't what I was reading at the beginning of this whole eventual getting to Berkeley was to say, at the outset, ordinary empirical affairs, chairs, tables, stones, sticks, etc., are called physical objects, which is obviously a term of theoretical interpretation when it is so applied, carrying with itself a complete metaphysical commitment. Yeah, that's... That's part of the mistake? That's not his view? Yeah. I think at this point, you're already... The physical objects are set up as opposed to mind or something like that. That's why they're physical. But couldn't you talk about the table as an object of physics? Or can you only talk about subatomic particle or, you know, atoms as objects of physics? Seems like you certainly could. Well, then, no, but that's the second step. Then physical objects are defined as the objects of physics. So that's step one is just these are physical objects and here's my mind and those two things are different. So the error there is already this subject-object relation. The physical part, I think, is meant to imply the... Then you say, oh... The physical objects are actually, they're made up of atoms and light bounces on them. And then, so you define the subject-object relationship in a new way. Well, so at the beginning of the the chapter, of that paragraph, Mark, of the four objects of science, he's getting into the part that, his point of view, if objects which are colored, sonorous, tactile, gustatory, loved, hated, enjoyed, admired, which are attractive and repulsive— exciting and different and depressive in all their infinitely numerous modes are beginnings and endings of complex natural affairs and if physical objects defined as objects of physical science are constituted by a mathematical mechanical order then physical objects instead of involving us in the predicament of having to choose between opposing claimants to reality have precisely the characters which they should have in order to serve effectively as means for securing and avoiding immediate objects. What page are you reading on? 141 to 142. Yep. And then he goes into the four of these characters, maybe noted, the characters of the objects of science. So that says to me that the table, Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the one hand, it's wooden and pretty looking, and it, it has all the associations and potentialities, I could even hate this table, and it would be yep. objectively hateful, according to, you know, there's an occurrence of hating the table in the room. Dewey would be okay with right. that. He doesn't want to say the hate is merely in my mind. But when physics takes a look at that same table, then, of course, it's only going to consider 
certain parts of it. So if we yep. call it, it sort of depends on how we identify the table, what descriptive uh, term we're using. If we're saying the table, it's still a very same table. And if we know physics, we could look at the table and that will be part of our gestalt of tableness is the fact that it's made of atoms. Well, he's saying that that's our transition to what's just effective, this perceptual part of experience as um, the table to its, its being a sign, right? So that's when we, in the same way that the tool becomes not just an aesthetic object, but a something that's predictive in a way or, or is a sign. Or, yes, in a way that dream table is not. That's where the math, mathematical mechanical order comes in. So instead of the atoms underlying the, the real underlying reality of a phenomena, they're a way of describing sequences within experience and they don't make us this predicament he talks about. They don't make us choose: Am I going to choose the phenomenal table as real or the the atoms as the real thing? We don't have to worry about that because when he says they have all the characters that they should have in order to serve effectively as means for securing and avoiding immediate objects, this idea of using the mathematical mechanical order, we can regulate things such that we get the end results that we want so what's a good example so they're stable they admit substitutions we didn't know what that meant he says that the other two are the importance of elements you know if you care about how well the table is going to hold things up then you care about its brittleness or something which has to do with how the different particles of it stick together you want to know is is the table going to stand up to the weight that i'm going to put on it and then also the central position of laws and relations so just the causal properties of the table yeah, so we get three kind of things from them. We the objects of physics, unlike immediate objects, are constant. They allow substitution and then they allow things to be treated as made of parts. Relatively constant. Relatively stable. Yes. Not. Yeah. <laughs> and the relations form laws. So the laws themselves though are constant. The table is relatively constant, but the mathematical, mechanical laws are themselves constant. I mean they may be revised, but as they stand, they're constants. You know, these are the wave equations. Yes. This is the inverse square law. That law itself doesn't change, but it may be revised. So insofar as it gets revised or thrown out, then you would say that it's changing. But it really is a different kind of change than uh, physical objects themselves. So yeah, so then on 144, that's where he gets to saying these are, he uses this term dialectical entities. Mm -hmm. So... Would that have instrumental character but are not metaphysical ultimates? Yeah. He, he says the instrumental nature of objects of knowledge accounts for the central position of laws and relations. These are the formulations of the regularities upon which intellectual and other regulation of things as immediate apparitions depends. Variability of elements in mathematical science is spacious. Elements vary independently of one another, but not independently in relation to others, the relation or law being constancy among variations. So this is, I guess this is just your point, Wes, that the laws themselves aren't changing. Where were you just reading? 146 or so. Uh, yeah. So later on in that paragraph, it is thus only pro forma that the variable is variable. It is not variable in the sense in which unique individualized existences are variable. Yeah, he's talking about the way in which this the substitution part doesn't mean that the laws aren't constant. Yeah. And then he points to a little bit to one of the challenges here. The instrumental nature of the relation of elements and this abrogation of individuality merely means a temporary neglect 
and abstracted gaze in behalf of attending to conditions under which individualities present themselves. Convert the objects of knowledge into real things by themselves, and individuals become anomalous or unreal. They are not individualized for science, but are instances, cases, specimens of some generical relation or law. So this is one of the activities of science to fix these things in an abstracted gaze and hold them as to be fixed entities. And this is one of the dangers in science when you neglect the fact that the things you're looking at as actual phenomena are not fixed. So that unless you're an experimentalist who really hopes and prays that when you go and turn on your machine that you'll see something you've never seen before and that doesn't make any sense, if everything is always fixed, then to the extent that your abstracted gaze corresponds directly with reality, then you would no longer have live, real, existing objects. So if it's all just atoms or the extent to which these universal laws subsume individuals, Mm -hmm. the individuality is eliminated, you know, for the sake of a a law of physics. It's not this planet. It's all planets that (laughs) are subjected to gravity in this way. But yeah, if we see those relations as instrumental, then the abstraction is temporary neglect. But it's when we reify yes, yes, the physics of it, then individuals become the unreal things. The phenomenal individual is not real. The table is not real, but the atoms are, things like that. Yeah. yeah. And he wants to remind us, I, 148, I have a quote, Timeless laws taken by themselves, like all universals, express dialectic intent, not any matter-of-fact existence. You know, there was a reason that you came up with that law, that descriptive regularity, because you wanted to do something in the broad sense. It's not an existent. So this all just shows that my equation earlier in the discussion with tools like the telescope and natural laws that we use to describe the motion of the planets, that those are not the same thing. He's not equating those. I was wrong. But I think dialectical intent, doesn't that just mean that it's kind of an, if I do this, then this will happen? Again, it's a broader than I want to make a chair or I want to sure. blow up something. So I'm going to learn how to split the atom. If I look at this part of the sky, I expect to see this. Yeah. The intent part is about this expectation thing where we uh-huh. we think that doing something, which becomes experimentation, but doing something is going to produce a certain result. If I drop a grapefruit off of the high building, it will splat. That was my uh, high school science project. <laughs> Grapefruits? <laughs> no, no. I used to have nightmares about uh, what, what they call it? science projects, science Olympiads, science fairs, science fairs. Oh my god! Yeah. I used to have nightmares. <laughs> I was terrible at those. My first science fair thing in seventh grade was trying to show that fish move less when they're in the dark, and because I knew that fish were colorblind, I thought that I could take a green light into a closet with some fish, and because they're colorblind, they wouldn't be able to see at all. <laughs> they would think it was completely dark. <laughs> So my whole experiment was based on a misunderstanding of what colorblind means. That's awesome. Because, you know, with like with the red light, yeah. you could do photographs. And so it's like there's actually no light there. I thought that was the same with any color. So I didn't get that. And then in eighth grade, I made a windmill and glued a bicycle counter and was trying to change the angle of the windmill blades to see if it would move faster like just really prove a very a fundamental thing about windmills, but I couldn't actually get it to work. I couldn't get the glue. The glue would not stick so that the counter would actually turn. So I merely falsified my results. 
And this is why, unlike Dylan, we didn't become scientists. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. What do we have to say about that? I learned by doing. It was a hands-on thing. Yeah, you experimentally proved your ignorance of colorblindness. <laughs> I feel the end coming. Yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Well, I think we hit most of the high points. We didn't talk about exactly how central festivity is in nature, but uh, that was probably my favorite part of the reading. The beginning is of all the chapters. Yeah, before he starts repeating himself. <laughs> yes, chapter one was a little dry when he got to transubstantiation. Oh, yeah, right. I need to look up this quote. In your edition, the quote would start at the very bottom of 28 and go to the very first two lines of 29. Yeah. Say permanence, real essence, totality, order, unity, rationality, the unum, verum et bonum of the classic tradition are eulogistic predicates. When we find such terms used to describe the foundations and proper conclusions of a philosophic system, there is ground for suspecting that an artificial simplification of existence has been performed. Reflection, determining preference for an eventual good, has dialectically wrought a miracle of transubstantiation. Yes, that's the first place in the book where I smiled and said, this is not so bad. This is, <laughs> it just seemed dry before that, but I, I really like that quote. Uh, I really like the beginnings of chapter two when he starts talking about how dangerous the world is and how fear is real. And the beginning of chapter three, when he talks about how central consummatory experiences, what he calls, I, we haven't used that word yet why he thinks these aesthetic things are final. It's not that we're just always doing things for the sake of survival, like a strict Darwinian would say. It's that we're sort of always bursting that the pursuit of primary experience of aesthetic glory, of pleasure, and the press of necessity that drives us to labor always go hand in hand. He says, while homes are still hovels, temples and palaces are embellished. Luxuries prevail over necessities, except where necessities can be feastily celebrated. Men make a game of their fishing and hunting and turn to the periodic and disciplinary labor of agriculture only when inferiors, women and slaves, cannot be had to do the work. Useful labor is, whenever possible, transformed by ceremonial and ritual accompaniments, subordinated to art that yields immediate enjoyment. Otherwise, it is attended to under the compulsion of circumstances during abbreviated surrenders of leisure. Yes. I just like this whole non-functional, you know, really surprising for somebody who seems to be following Darwin this cultural insight that seems very Nietzschean to me. Yeah, just this idea that imagination imbues work with consummatory satisfaction and gives it the structure of play while labor in turn gives back to play. A, he says it gives it a plot. It sort of structures play. So the, the dynamic between those two, but yeah, when I said it was packed with insight, that's one of the things that... Yeah, I mean, he's using this all to set up the idea that we make mistakes, <laughs> philosophical mistakes based on this, but it's a very insightful in itself. Going back and taking notes on it the second time, I didn't mind some of the stuff before. It's just that, you know, the preface, which kind of outlines the whole thing and outlines the chapters, is really hard to understand without being immersed in the chapters. These ideas are not easy to summarize, even though it seems like you could just state them in one sentence. To use his terminology and make it understandable just doesn't work so well. So the preface was hard, and that kind of bled over into the chapter one on philosophic method, where, of course, I got the main point that experience is not a screen over nature, but there's nothing new here. You know, we had it in Whitehead, we had it in Mary Ponty, we've had it in probably Hegel and 
William James and everybody else. Like, it, it, so if that was all there was to this book, I was just really going to be irritated. So I'm glad he had, uh, you know, I think did a really good job where I would criticize Nietzsche, even though I like when he, instead of analyzing their philosophies, analyzing the motives behind the philosophies, he does so in such a sort of quick way that to have somebody like Dewey here systematically go through and talk about cultural mistakes as coming out of our functional need for survival and desire for decking things out for pleasure in this way. If he'd actually added more real examples, it would have even been better. But still, there was enough for me to chew on. So I enjoyed that much. I really uh, love Dewey, to tell you the truth, <laughs> despite my uh, anti-pragmatist leanings. And it's a really attractive theory of things. I mean, the only part I don't really buy is sort of the psychological explanations of why its metaphysics was determined by this propensity for the stable and it's safer. And, and then this creates this subject-object problem. I see the origins of philosophy having to do with pluralism, which is to say the pluralism of ancient Athens, for instance, in which there was a question of what the good was and people disagreed about it. And the basic question was whether the good is getting what I want or is it being a good person? That kind of question, being virtuous. And it's that disagreement, it's the normative problem that leads to knowledge being a problem. Epistemology, it's pretty clear from Plato, grows out of the normative problem of disagreeing about what is good, which then in turn brings about the problem of the nature of the world. Because for metaphysics, the real question is, what is it about the world that is knowable by us? So I think there are real problems philosophy is actually addressing and concerned with, and it's not to be psychoanalyzed away by talk of the, the precarious and the stable and things like that. Well, Wes, you've convinced me that I've read so many of these genealogical accounts. You know, we just had one with Ava Brand. We've had other ones with the birth of tragedy that I don't even read them anymore thinking, is this actually historically <laughs> right. how it worked? I only read it for like, does this illuminate in an interesting way the point he wants to make about what's wrong with philosophy now? <laughs> so. Yeah, and I think they can be psychologically quite accurate. And the, the same thing goes with psychoanalysis. You know, even though it's an interest of mine, the idea of psychoanalyzing away explanations is just an ad hominem. It doesn't matter if the motive was the precarious and the stable. You know, it could also be that there were real interesting problems that philosophers were concerned with. So I think Dewey, in a way, is actually right to some extent psychologically. But that doesn't change the fact that philosophy is concerned with real and interesting problems. But maybe I'll change my mind once I understand pragmatism better, which, by the way, I, I think, again, is enormously appealing, but I don't understand the, the way you get around the need for mind independence and how you suck that into your two-dimensional picture. I have never gotten it. And so it seems to me like it devolves into man is the measure of all things or some sort of relativism or idealism. But if I understood it better, and I think, unfortunately, Dewey doesn't give the kinds of examples or, or he doesn't tackle this particular problem head on of trying to explain to you how it's not relativistic. And, and I'm sure there's stuff out there that does, but that's what I want explained to me. The problem is you're just not deep enough, Wes. That's oh, all. man. You just don't get it. <laughs> What do you think, Dylan? I loved it. I, maybe surprisingly, haven't read Dewey before. And from the very beginning, from the preface, he was just making a lot of sense. I found the first chapter dry 
similar to what Mark said, I thought it picked up a lot afterwards. I thought that his characterization of science is a process of figuring things out in which things are held to be true, but in the end, revisable, just seemed exactly right. And it seemed exactly the way in which if we're to be figuring out things in the world in a live way, that that's exactly right, including our arguments about what amounts to good living. It would be interesting to read him later to see about these pluralistic problems that maybe don't admit of the same kind of solution in that they may be humanly dependent in a way that there may not be a single solution to it. But in terms of his characterization of scientific work and even philosophical activity as being a an active process of unearthing and critiquing and reflecting just resonated with me deeply. I had two quotes that I wanted to end on. One was just at the very beginning of chapter three, it was one of my, there's ways in which he's kind of funny. He says, the history of man shows, however, that man takes his enjoyment neat and at as short range as possible. <laughs> when he's talking about the primacy of festivities, I just enjoyed that. At the end of like the last five pages of Nature, Means, and Knowledge, he says, uh, in the practice of science, knowledge is an affair of making sure, not of grasping antecedently given sureties. What is already known, what is accepted as truth, is of immense importance. Inquiry could not proceed a step without it, but it is held subject to use and is at the mercy of the discoveries which make it possible. It has to be adjusted to the latter and not the latter to it. When things are defined as instruments, their value and validity reside in what proceeds from them. Consequences, not antecedents, supply meaning and verity. Truths already possessed may have practical or moral certainty, but logically never lose a hypothetical quality. They are true if. If certain other things eventually present themselves, and when these latter things occur, they in turn suggest further possibilities, the operation of doubt, inquiry, finding recurs. Although science is concerned in practice with the contingent, its method is that of making hypotheses which are then tried out in actual experimental change of physical conditions, its traditional formulation persists in terms of necessary and fixed objects. Hence, all kinds of incoherences occur. The more stubbornly the traditional formulation is clung to, the more serious become these inconsistencies. I mean, just that paragraph right there. He understands how science works. Straight up. Right. And it's just these bastard philosophers that don't understand science that just yeah. screw everything up. Yeah, I they... didn't like the parts where he's shitting all over uh, philosophy. I forgot to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan seems perfectly okay with Well, what we did not read the last chapter is him talking about philosophy. Well, you know, what does this mean for philosophy? So... Though I have to say, you know, one of the things I was sympathetic with is the way in which, for him, science is philosophy, right? What I just read about science, he would say is true of philosophy. Naturalistic philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Rightly conceived, but not all the bullshit that I'm interested in. <laughs> so so, so that, all that bullshit, I, I think how we sort that out, and maybe I don't know his work enough to know if he gets into political philosophy, we got hints of it in here that one of the abstractions was forgetting that 
man is fundamentally a social animal, yep. a political animal, and talks about the social contract at one point in here as being a disastrous mistake. And you know, it's just one of the many histories that he gives yeah, in one of these yeah. chapters, talking about the rise of individualism, about how all these steps, you know, they had positive effects. They enabled science to go forward. In this case, it was by recognizing individual subjectivity, like by pointing that out as its own thing. Like that was a big deal in terms of, and this is what philosophy is about. It's about being critical about our prejudices. Yep. That if you don't have the distinction between mind and object, then you can't get the idea that, well, maybe you're only perceiving things the way you do because of prejudices from your society or from your psychology. So it really is important to peel those things apart analytically as a corrective. And that's ultimately what philosophy is trying to do. It's just that when you peel it apart too far, you forget that the peeling happened. You forget that you're dealing with an abstraction yep. and think that the primal subjectivity is the thing that you start with, you know, or the only thing you can be sure of like Descartes, then you create these insoluble problems. And so this is his issue, you know, in general, when he's going off against philosophy, it's because of this hypostasization of one thing or another. So he really is like many pragmatists and trying to sweep under the rug a lot of the, the classical philosophical problems by saying they don't have a leg to stand on. They're conceptually confused from the start. And I am completely in favor of reification, of reifying atoms and saying, those are real. Blue is in my head. Electromagnetic radiation bounces off. I'm in favor of reifying them and actually making them king. <laughs> not, not just making them things. That atoms are king. Well, next time, we're going to go back to modern analytic philosophy with Hilary Putnam, some stuff about twin Earths, in other words, about modality, just like we had in the Saul Kripke episode. The meaning of meaning is one essay. Is semantics possible? And it ain't necessarily so. And I get the feeling that Dewey would not have approved of any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Although Putnam denies being a pragmatist, but he is influenced by pragmatism. Yeah. Right. The Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy said Hilary Putnam, in particular, named Dewey as having some significant influence on him. He rejects the pragmatist definition of truth. And... Well, actually, uh, it's funny, Dewey himself later didn't want to follow James in redefining truth. He did this in his early career, but later he just said, we're just going to stop using the word truth and use <laughs> warranted assertion. <laughs> well, yeah. That's what I mean. And Richard Rorty has picked up on yeah. that to, to pernicious effect, I think. <laughs> Hey, we're supported by your donations. Please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to make a contribution. Big donors since last time have included Michaelin Lutji, Jeff Hedge, Michael Zanette, Jeff Murphy, Ryan Fitzgerald, Bryce Pulley, Colin Gorey, Sandra York, Amy Omana, Michael Guido, Lindsay Bunt, Stephen Tullock, David Smith, Dominic Harris, Zekun Hu, Laura Davis-Channon, Matt Sanza, Greg Vogelsberger, Sebastian Sarti, Allison Jones, David Stanton, and Jeannie Carey. Thanks also to the smaller donors, including those who are newly or on a continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site, which you should do. Uh, if you're too cheap for that, just go play around in our Facebook group. You could participate that way. You could read the blog. You could subscribe to a near daily email from us about various things. You could follow us on Twitter. You could reify something <laughs> and dedicate it to us. I don't know. All right. Thanks, guys. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Show it.
Come on, come on.